So deception is bad, right? Not when you're a major league pitcher. I'll ask Tanner Smith about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 13th. It's show number 18 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have two feature expert interviews. First, I'll talk with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report columnist at BaseballHQ.com. We'll discuss pitcher deception and using advanced pitching data, pitch labeling, the breakout of Shane McClanahan, the current state of sticky stuff and spin, world-class competitive cup stacking, and his boons and banes. And later on, we'll have a talk with Todd. Todd Zola rejoins the pod to talk about the physics of the 2022 baseball and whatever else crosses our minds. In between Tanner and Todd, we'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including the ongoing center field situation in Philadelphia, a change at shortstop in St. Louis, and some welcome returnees in San Diego. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including injuries to Mitch Garver and Carlos Correa, a setback for Chris Sale, and a welcome returnee in Tampa. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Dodgers second baseman Michael Bush. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about a possibly underappreciated aspect of starting pitcher performance, or at least results. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have two top-notch fantasy baseball experts in the house. We're going to talk a lot of baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's our feature expert interview with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Tanner, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And I'm excited to have you back. A real interesting conversation we had the last time you were on the show, I learned a lot, and uh, it was very interesting to inspire thinking about things. But before we get started this time, uh, how many leagues are you playing this year? So I'm actually not playing much fantasy this year. I'm just in one hometown league. But um, the reason why I'm only in one this year is because I didn't know I was going to be able to play fantasy baseball this year. Um, I was in the process of applying for jobs with um major league teams and when you're working for a major league team you're not allowed to play fantasy obviously so um that was really it was a last second thing to me even getting to the one i'm in now but it was kind of up in the air even up in april why can't you play fantasy baseball if you're working for a team um just the conflict of interest thing you know especially if you especially if it was any competitive league with money i don't know how it would work for like a no stakes league kind of deal but even that i i just didn't want to get into a situation where i had to uh, bail on a league because i feel like that would be a terrible thing to do um i you know once i commit to something i want to be into it um and i've had the situation before where someone's had to quit a fantasy league and it's a pain to try to replace them as a commissioner so i just didn't want to be in that situation 
Yeah, it does. It does really suck when somebody leaves a league, even for the best of reasons during the year, uh, mm-hmm. because it, it causes all kinds of problems for the rest of the guys in the league. You know, everybody's trying to figure out what do we do with the guys' players. Usually you just freeze the roster, right? And then it just plays out. Uh, I was, I wasn't in this league, but I knew about a guy who was in a league and a guy left and his frozen roster that he left behind won the league. Wow. Yeah. Because (laughs) everybody else got injuries and stuff. And then he heard about it and he came back and he said, where's my prize money? And they said, dude, you left the league. So we gave first place to second and second to third and so forth. Second place is the winner at that point. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree entirely. So how do you go about applying for jobs with major league teams? Um, so I, so there's a site, teamwork.com, um, that where most of the jobs that are posted publicly are posted. Um, and so I applied for a lot of jobs through that. I applied for some jobs through LinkedIn, um, did some networking to get some opportunities. Um, but it's really just a lot of applying and then, um, trying to figure out, you know, what are the areas you're interested in? Because obviously for a major league team, there are, you know, hundreds of potential jobs. For me, I knew I wanted to be on the player operations side for a major league team. Um, so that was kind of where I was at um, for applying for those jobs. So I just sent out a bunch of applications, went through some pretty long interview processes, actually, and um, got pretty close and it just didn't quite work out this time around. But are you allowed to say which teams you got close with? Um, I'm probably not going to say that. Um, but it, it was, I would say I was in like the final two for about three jobs. And what, what kind of jobs were they specifically? Um, they, one of them was as a scouting analyst. Um, so it was essentially a combination of analytics and scouting. Um, one of them was as R&D, and one of them was as a international scouting analyst. So essentially combining scouting and um, analytics for international amateur prospects. Well, that sounds interesting. Did you ever think about applying with minor league teams, or do they even bother with that kind of stuff? So for minor league teams, because they don't have control of the player personnel, um, the minor league team jobs are going to be more like marketing or ticketing or anything to do with like running the business as opposed to like player personnel. So there was weren't as many opportunities that would have fit um, what I want to do um, in a minor league sphere. Good luck if you keep trying to do that. I, I suppose you wouldn't be allowed to write for Baseball HQ either, so that would be a big loss for our community. But uh, keep trying, and, uh, and maybe if you if you get a job with a major league team, you, you can send me some tickets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now, honestly, that was the big upside, though, of not getting a job this time around in that arena. Because I'm looking at other arenas now, um, just about to graduate from graduate school. But now I kind of get the situation of eating my um, getting my cake and eating it too, because I get to, you know, potentially be a data analyst somewhere, um, whether it be in sports or not. And I get the right for HQ and continue to, um, write for the Arsenal report, which has been really great for me and something I really enjoyed doing and get to be on a podcast here. So that's the best part, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Remind us again, how you started writing the Arsenal report at baseballhq.com. Really coming out of high school, um, my senior year of high school, I was looking for a summer job of some kind, and I didn't want to work, you know, in just a normal part-time job. I felt like I wanted to do something that was building my, um, really continuing to build on my skills. So I decided to 
reach out to um, Ron Chandler and because my dad and Ron Chandler are good friends. And he put me in contact with Ray and Brent. Long story short, I got to be an administrative assistant for Baseball HQ for a couple of years over summers, um, doing stuff like inputting stuff into the website, dealing with surveys, essentially anything that um, I could do remotely ad hoc, um, I did. And then my sophomore year of college, I got the opportunity to do some scouting writing um, and learn from Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey and um, also a scout um, locally to learn how to do that. So that was my first writing on the site. And then um, come 20, the 2021 season, um, I knew that I wanted to write a column for Baseball HQ. And Brent and I had talked about it for a long time of how we could get me writing full time for the site. And then so the idea was, you know, I needed to come up with an idea for a column. And one night I thought up the um, I was looking for a type of analysis that broke down pitchers um, by stuff because there was really a wave that was coming of all the information we were having, especially from StatCast of the stuff of just breaking down pitchers by K rates, walk rates, and these surface level peripheral stats wasn't quite quenching my appetite as a reader um, anymore in terms of what I wanted for breaking down um, pitchers and their potential value. So I decided to kind of write the column that I wanted to read, um, which was breaking down pitchers changes in their stuff and their location in their pitch repertoire and all this kind of stuff. And I proposed it and Brent and Ray really liked it. And we just kind of went from there. It was bi-weekly last year and now it's a weekly this year. So you said you wanted to write a column that you would like to read, which is always an excellent way to approach it. What do you like to read in a baseball analysis column? And what are your goals for this column as far as who you're trying to reach, what you're trying to offer to them? My surface level goal is to entertain and inform HQ readers by breaking down pitchers in a way that's accessible yet rigorous and to potentially give HQ readers an edge on pitchers that may currently be under overvalued by their surface numbers or even their underlying like second level sabermetric um, performance metrics. But really the underlying goal, which is the stuff I like to read is I want to give readers at least one walking away from the column, one thing that they learned um, about how to better analyze baseball. Because if I'm reading a column, what I really want, or any article, I really want to come away with at least one thing that makes me better as an analyst or teaches me something I didn't know before, Um, whether it be a fact about a player or, you know, just I want to come away with something of value that will stick. I did that too when I was starting out, but unfortunately for me, the one thing that they learned was they didn't want to read my columns. So, <laughs> so I, I had to I had to do a bit of a, a shift in that. So, how do you choose which pitchers you're going to analyze? It's two or three a week, sometimes a, a long one and a short one kind of thing. But there's hundreds of pitchers to choose from. How do you choose? Yeah, so my process is not actually that systematic. Um, I kind of want to make that's one thing I want to improve on down down the line is get more of a system but it's usually more of like i'm watching a lot of games each week um and i'm watching a lot of pictures i'm specifically like scroll you know going back and forth between games just so i can see starting pictures and if i see something i write it down um 
And then I also spend a lot of time on baseball savant um, looking at pitchers that maybe uh, have performed really well to start the year above their career norms or below, below their career norms. And if I see something without going too deep into it, that looks interesting, then I write their name down too on my list. And sometimes I see maybe a tweet from a baseball analyst because I'm pretty active on Twitter, not in terms of posting myself, but in terms of making sure I'm following as many um, smart baseball analysts as I can. Um, sometimes, you know, they'll say, well, Woodruff's fastball looks good today. Something like that to the point where it's just a small like starting point um, where I might, I'll write their name down and look into them and see if they're worth worthy. So I'll have this list that I'm compiling through the week. And usually it's um, a bigger list. And then I that's where I really go to start looking at um, Savant pages, Fangraph pages, video, and then really narrow down into the two to three to, or very occasionally four now um, pictures that I break down each week because I have to um, make sure that each picture I'm breaking down, there are meaningful changes. Um, that are likely going to affect performance moving forward. So I, each week, you know, I show the best of the best of what I have, but I have other guys that I'm looking into each week that just didn't quite make the cut. So you have the column coming out once a week? Mm-hmm. Yep. When you think about all the guys you've covered so far and all the guys you've looked at, but maybe you haven't decided to write about, uh, who are two or three good examples of pitchers who really improved their actual performance by changing their pitch mix, which is the focus of the column. To go with this, usually with a pitch mix change, there's also a, the most effective ones, there's also a improvement in stuff. Um, so a couple examples of that are Ranger Suarez in 2021. He really improved the velocity and movement on his sinker. And he wrote a new game plan based on this sinker. Um, to success, working his changeup off that sinker arm side and his four-seamer up in glove side to give him another pitch to um, complement that sinker changeup combo. Because he didn't really have much of a breaking ball for most of the year, he started to work in a slider at the end, but he really decided because his sinker had improved so much that he could change his pitch mix to accommodate that or to take advantage of that um, improvement and stuff. And he obviously had a great year last year, 2021. And another one is Trevor Rogers in 2021. Um, and he started dominating righties in 2021 after struggling massively against them in 2020. He also improved his stuff. Um, fastball velocity went up. Off-speed pitches went up, uh, got better. But he also started using his best pitch as changeup more against righties when he had mostly gone fastball slider in 2020. And that changeup worked better off of his fastball in terms of tunneling to righties. And that also made his fastball better. Um, so when you combine that with the improvement in the stuff, it really made a noticeable difference. Why did this revolution take so long in coming? It seems sort of intuitive that if, if you're a pitching coach or a pitcher and you say, well, my fastball is kind of ordinary, but my curveball is really good. But for years, they just kept saying, throw the fastball half the time, even if it's your worst pitch. And I wonder how many pitchers over the years just, just got drummed out of baseball because they they were coached or ordered, I guess, sometimes, don't throw your curveball so much. 
Well, it's my best pitch. Well, well, you got to throw the fastball because that's what everybody does since Babe Ruth. It seems stupid. Right. So that first part of the first part of it is really what you're talking about there is that orthodoxy. You know, everything, every pitcher is the same and there's a way, a golden way to pitch. You know, it's locate your fastball down and away and then throw a breaking ball once you get the two strikes. And, you know, maybe if you have a good fastball, you can work with your fastball up or fastball in. But, you know, it was really a cookie cutter approach. So that's really the first thing that's changed is a willingness to experiment to gain edges. The second thing that's really changed, though, that's really driven this movement is just tracking. Um, You know, every change that's really been made in baseball in the last 20 years, big change in terms of like a um, sabermetric revolution has come with a better ability to track um, whatever metric it is that we're looking at. You know, um, for example, we didn't care about spin that much before um, baseball savant because we didn't know how to measure it. Um, so as we get better at measuring things and we get analysts that look into them, then all of a sudden, you know, it creates a trend. Sometimes the trend is overstated at the time because it's kind of a shiny new toy syndrome, but, um, it's really just once we got the ability to say, okay, we're tracking the percentage of pitches that each pitcher's thrown to each hitter. And we have this database now of, you know, all this information of how they fastball plays against righties versus lefties and how it works if you know you throw your um fastball and your changeup off of each other and where are you typically throwing your fastball and changeup there's some charting stuff that's gone on in the past but it's never been nearly as systematic and readily available as it is now also i think pitcher charting was you know just keeping track of what pitches the guy was throwing at it i don't know that there was any kind of rigor or discipline in determining how effective that pitch was each time it was thrown. And so they were just kind of keeping track of it. I'm not exactly sure how detailed that stuff was. And as you said, then you run into the problem pre-computers of collating the data, organizing it, figuring out, oh, there's a, there's a correlation here between this guy's change up to right-handers is hugely effective. I wonder if they really didn't have a way to know, except I wonder if some of the better catchers were, were, were going to the pitching coach or going to the pitcher and saying, I've noticed, having caught hundreds of your pitches, that your fastball to left-handers isn't working for whatever reason. But every time you throw a change up to these guys, you get a ton of swing and miss. You should increase that. And then they go to the pitching coach who says, no, 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 50% fastballs. Fastball high and tight, curveball low and away. That's how everybody does it. I mean, so many of the edges, you know, start like that of just smart players. Honestly, I've started a lot of things like um, one thing that always sticks out to me is, you know, Chase Utley had these great defensive metrics at second base, despite not, you know, on the surface being the most athletic second baseman, certainly didn't have a great arm. What he was doing, which was ahead of his time, was he was shifting um, himself to be more towards the first base side against left hand hitters. So he was taking those hits away back when, you know, there were overshifts, but there weren't, you know, guys that were, guys generally weren't playing the in that spot as consistently against left-handed hitters as he was. So, you know, there's so many examples, like you said, of, you know, the best catchers, I'm assuming, were, really were the ones, there's this intangible skill that's still somewhat intangible of a catcher guiding a pitcher through a game. And, you know, so much of catcher value is still yet to be quantified. 
But that's one of those things that I'm guessing was even a bigger differentiator before we had all these metrics of which catchers were really paying attention to hitters and how their um, pitchers were working and what was effective versus those who weren't as diligent and stuck more the orthodoxy of their pitching coaches. There's a couple of names that jump to mind about pitching coaches or players who really were ahead of their time and they were pretty much rejected by the baseball establishment. Johnny Sane, I don't know if you know that name, but yeah. Spawn and Sane and Pray for Rain. He was a really yeah. well-known pitching coach, but he, he kept getting fired because he kept saying, this is how we should be doing it, which was much more in line with what we're doing now. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the manager didn't like it or the general manager didn't like it. And on he would go to his next because he was very stubborn about it as well. And the other guy yep. whose name pops into my mind about this stuff is Mike Marshall, who was mm-hmm. a very iconoclastic pitching coach who couldn't find a job, even though he seems to have figured out a lot of this stuff literally decades before everybody else. I don't know if you've ever read Ball 4, yeah. but uh, he, he was a yeah. rookie with the Pilots or a second-year mm-hmm. player, and he was doing a bunch of stuff in a very unorthodox way, including mm-hmm. lugging a weighted ball around. And, yep. and, and every pitching coach said, no, you'll destroy your arm. Well, no, he pitched, you know, 120 innings a, a year in relief or 200 almost one year. He was a, a, a guy ahead of his time. And I'm not saying this to belittle baseball executives and stuff over the years. I think it's a institutional problem. Anywhere you go to work, if you're the kind of person who looks at things and says, I know a better way to do that. The hardest mm-hmm. thing in the world to do is to get your boss to say, yeah, because his initial response is always going to be, that's not how we do it around here. Right. I mean, that's a really tough thing. And you have to be really stubborn and you have to be really, you know, good. For example, you know, a guy like Earl Weaver, he was able to, you know, be ahead of his time and say, you know, I'm not bunning. I'm not doing all this small ball stuff. I'm waiting for a three-run home run. But because he won and because he had such um, stubborn conviction with the way that he was going to play or manage Oriole baseball, you know, they had great success and they got to the point where he was so good and the team was so good that they couldn't mess with him. No one could touch him at that point. And then copycats come because that's what always happens is as soon as someone does something unorthodox and it works and they're able to prove over time that it works, then you get the people that, adapted as a new orthodoxy and then the cycle, um, goes again. Yeah, there definitely is a cycle and the, I think this particular cycle that we're in with advanced analytics is going to have a a lot of legs. I think it's going to last a long time because it's based so much more in actual data rather than what a guy remembers when he saw Mel Ott swing a bat or something (laughs) like that. And it's now, you know, this guy swings about a certain way. We have 17 different camera angles on it. We have slow-mo, we have ultra slow-mo, we have those computer generated images. He's not getting enough torque. Let's coach him up. Let's get this going. And I think that's, that augurs well for the future of this. And I think we're seeing it, for example, in uh, clubs like San Francisco, well, Tampa also, but San Francisco, I heard on a podcast recently they've got something like 18 coaches on their staff and they're subdividing the tasks of the coaches so that everybody can optimize the work that they're doing with particular players because particular players don't interact well with certain personality types of coaches. So they mix and match these guys and they've had tremendous success in San Francisco 
And and then you have places like uh, Driveline, the Pitcher Labs and so forth, teammates. Who actually, in the end of all of this, decides to make the final changes to the pitcher's pitch mix so that he can be as successful as possible? So this is tough to know without good reporting. Um, I try to read as much as I can and write down notes in the offseason to track these things. But it's really a case-by-case basis. Um, some players go to Driveline or some other lab like that and get help there in the offseason. But it's up to them to consistently implement the changes suggested at one of these sites once the season begins. So a lot of times if you see offseason changes and a player has been reported to go to one of these labs, it's you know you can draw that connection pretty um, confidently. But in-season changes are almost always up to team personnel whether it be the pitchers themselves, coaches, teammates, or any combination of these people. Um, So if you see a big change within the season, you can be pretty confident that it's not because of driveline or any of these other labs that, or it's because of something that's um, been discovered internally. I wonder also if the reverse is true, whether the pitching coaches ever go to the player and say, you got to stop throwing your fastball. It's just not a good pitch and it's not getting anybody out. But he says, I once struck out 22 guys in a high school game. My, my fastball is excellent. <laughs> yeah, you're not trying to sneak it past, uh, you know, Juan Soto in your high school game. So, uh, you know, dummy up here and, and listen to what we're saying. And I think there are probably lots of sort of marginal pitchers or pitch, pitchers who appear to be marginal who can really make great gains if they listen to these coaches and optimize their pitches and, as you said, improve the pitches themselves to the point where they're effective on the field. I think it's interesting. But one of the things, I think we talked about this the last time you were on, Tanner, but I'd like to just go over it again quickly, that one of the problems when readers or fantasy managers or whoever are looking at these articles that they read about pitch mix changes and about you know stuff and, and that kind of stuff is naming the pitches consistently. Everybody knows what a four-seam fastball is, right? Everybody knows pretty much what a sinker is. But when you start getting into breaking pitches, you know, one guy's cutters, another guy's sliders, another guy's knuckle curve, they're all doing basically the same thing, or the movement is very typical. I wonder if we need to get to a different nomenclature for pitches when we're talking about this, describing the movement rather than just giving them a name. Because as I said, you ask one pitcher, he'll say, it's my cutter. Another one will say it's my slider, but they move exactly the same way, but it seems to cloud the issue when it comes time to analyze and discuss it. Yeah. It can certainly be deceiving if you're not paying close attention or diving deep. Um, Like you said, if a pitcher, if a pitch is classified as a curveball, but it's thrown as a slider, um, the pitch would likely be above average in velocity uh, and possibly horizontal movement compared to other curveballs, but at far less vertical break. Um, and to really address this issue, that's where I've started to adjust this year a little bit and incorporate more film study into my arsenal reports to make sure 100% I'm not missing something that would be apparent by watching that large sample of film. I watched film last year, but it's really become more consistent and a higher volume of it this year. Um, and also, this has provided better analysis to deal with these issues of pitch classification, I think. Um, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you call a pitch if you successfully break down the components of the pitch and understand how it fits in the pitcher's repertoire. So it really rewards the people who are willing to dig deep into it because 
Um, if you're just looking at it and saying, oh, he throws a fastball on a slider, you know, that's good communication for the first level of it. But if you don't know what that fastball is like, whether it's a high spin, low spin fastball or a, you know, a fastball with um, a low vertical approach angle that works well up in the zone, you don't know if it's a sweeping slider or a, a gyro slider that moves down more than up or horizontally. If you don't really go into those things and you're trying to just say, you know, this guy should throw his fastball more because it's a high velocity fastball, or he should throw his slider more because, you know, he's gotten good results on his slider. I don't really know what it is. I don't know how it fits into the rest of the pitch repertoire. You can be missing a lot. So I think that, yes, there's some things that could be done on just the labeling side. Um, you know, just calling it a sweeping slider, I think, for example, if that's the case, is one thing that could help. But I think it's also one of those cases where um, it, this kind of analysis really rewards those who are willing to go deep into it and make sure that they're thorough about um, the whole repertoire. I wonder if at some point we're going to figure out some way to bucket the pitches just by the horizontal and vertical movement and the velocity, you know, so you could have uh, some kind of descriptor for pitches that fit into particular buckets. Uh, you mentioned the sweeping slider. I, I saw a story the other day somewhere. I forget who the pitcher was, but uh, a lot of his new success had been attributed to what they were calling the sweeper. It's almost entirely horizontal movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, a reporter went up to the pitcher and said, so I hear you're throwing a sweeper. And the pitcher goes, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> and not that was that. <laughs> but maybe yeah. he was, but that's not what he called it. No, I mean, that's the thing is so much also of, pitch labeling too is um you know there's what savant calls a pitch and that may be different from what the pitcher calls the pitch but from the pitcher's point of view there can be some utility to calling a pitch um something even if that's not what it is for example um if someone's throwing a slider but they really need the conviction that i have to throw this hard um and i don't care how much it breaks i just have to throw it hard and i have to get it to a spot maybe it's more useful to the pitcher and the pitching coach to call it a cutter just for the mental side of it. Um, so that, you know, they're not trying to generate movement and as much as they're just trying to throw it hard and get it to a spot or maybe, you know, if, uh, if they're more comfortable with a curveball and they've always called something a curveball and their breaking ball now looks more like a slider, maybe it's better for them mentally to call it a curveball. Um, so there's also that component to it where there's a certain conviction and execution that you have to have to throw each pitch properly. And that may not line up with um, what the pitch actually does movement wise. I never thought of that, but yeah, there's a, there's a big mental side to pitching and conviction is a big part of it. So if, if a guy's uncertain about his slider or what he calls his slider and, and quite certain about his cutter and you know, you want him to throw the slider, just call it the cutter because he likes it and, and he'll throw it with, uh, with more confidence. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an outlier aspect too, I think in a lot of this stuff, I talked about this with Steve Gardner from USA Today last week and the subject of Joe Ryan came up of the twins and when you look at the stuff in isolation, it's not super impressive, but he's having great results. And uh, Steve attributed a big part of that to just pure deception, which has to mm -hmm. do with the fact that uh, apparently Joe Ryan played water polo when he was a kid. And something about that arm motion makes his release point very difficult to pick up 
because it's very different compared to everybody else's release point, I'm going to guess, how can we build in these kind of attributes into, into models or is it worth doing? So this is an issue of measurement. And in modeling lingo, as we learn more and are able to measure pitch characteristics more precisely, the error term is reduced, essentially what we don't know. Um, and if you think about where we were prior to StatCast, we could measure pitch velocity. We had some idea about pitch movement from things like pitch FX, but we were way behind where we are now. Um, where, you know, for example, if we would say the Kimbrel fastball had great life to it, but we didn't really know what that meant um, other than that it worked up in the zone. We had the idea of like what it needed to do, but not exactly why it was doing it. But now we're able to measure things such as spin, spin efficiency, extension, vertical approach angle, and all these different things that increase the preciseness of our models of what make pitches good, um, such as Cameron Grove's pitching bot in the athletics stuff plus metric. And I'm working on my own metric of my I own at that point and potentially plan to showcase it to HQ readers in the future. But back to your question about Ryan, there's still a lot of research to be done in terms of deception, um, the measure deception, such as what makes Ryan's fastball so effective despite a lack of velocity and spin. And we know he's a ver low vertical approach angle guy, and that adds to the deception of his fastball. Essentially, it makes it look... Um, more enticing the hitters than it is, and then it rises, appears to rise over their bat. But there's still some error term to what makes this fastball so effective that we know is real and what we're choosing to call deception because that's what our best label we have for it. We don't have a way to measure it yet. And in cases like this, it's important to go back to the results that the pitch is generating as everything's wrapped up in that, even if we can't dissect all of the individual pieces yet. Um, so essentially, at some point, you know, if the fastball is getting good results, we can, and in a sustainable way, you know, it's not like it's just getting um, good Babbitt luck or whatever it is, but if it's getting good results consistently and it doesn't measure up as good by whatever inputs we have in our model, we have to assume that we just haven't measured whatever it is yet. And, you know, as we continue to research, maybe we'll find what it is. Um, I would think that. Um, another guy who would have been interesting back in his day was Matt Cain. Um, they was, he was right before really this revolution and no one really understood why Matt Cain could throw 90 mile per hour fastballs up in the zone and get a million pop-ups and strikeouts despite, you know, just looking ordinary. Um, I would have been really interested to see what his metrics look like, but you know, that's an example of, you know, right before we had the amount of information, we kind of just concluded for a while, Matt Cain's good. We don't really know why, but Matt Cain's good. Anybody else currently come to mind like that besides Joe Ryan? I, not off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling off the top of my head. Bailey Falter is one, but we kind of know why, um, just because of the massive amount of extension he gets. We It's also kind of in question how good he is, but um He's also really interesting because you watch, if you didn't watch the delivery at all and you just watched the stuff, you would wonder how he got above double A. Um, but, <laughs> you know, if you actually watch how hitters react, especially like the first time they see him, it's really weird. Um, hitters just don't, because there's benefits to being unorthodox. And a lot of that, there's another guy, Nestor Cortez, now I'm thinking about it, that really is a good example of that, where 
he does so much stuff funk wise, you know, changing up his deliveries and, you know, just generally confusing hitters that there's a lot of stuff that would be missed if you were just looking at his baseball savant page. Um, but if you actually watch him, that's where the value of the film study comes again. You realize he's just doing it differently than everyone else right now. And there's a lot of value to just, even if you don't have the best stuff of just being something that hitters don't usually see because hitters are creatures of habit and of timing. And if you find a way to disrupt that timing, however it is, you're likely to be effective. A guy I wish that the uh, current measurement techniques and the analytics that uh, attach to the more uh, precise data that we have is Luis Tiant, who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, again, another guy whose who's prime stock in trade seemed to be coming from every angle from dead underhand to dead overhand and throwing mm-hmm. all kinds of, of junk up there. And I think he had pretty good velocity, but I don't even remember if that was tracked back in the day. I remember watching him though. And, uh, yeah. uh every time I watched him uh, pitch, I thought, I don't know how anybody ever gets a hit off this guy because it's just coming at you from such a bewildering array of, right. of arm angles and, and wrist angles and all that kind of stuff. It must've been very mm-hmm. tough. Well, it was very tough for, for a lot of hitters. Johnny Cueto was another guy who recently kind of the wheels fell off a little bit, but he was doing all that. Um, he, he was probably emulating Keon, honestly. Um, you know, he was, it was amazing because it takes so much body control and balance to be able to do that consistently. You know, it's one of those things where you think about if this is so effective, why doesn't everyone do it? Or, you know, all the guys lingering in double A throwing 90 miles per hour, try this, but it really takes a special athlete to be able to repeat that, that array of deliveries and to have those deliveries be major league caliber, even if, you know, by stuff um, just raw, they don't grade out, but they have to be of a certain quality um, just to be major league, to be effective in the major league level, no matter what, um, angle you throw it from. Yeah. I don't mean to suggest that anybody who turns his back on a batter is going to all of a sudden find himself in the big leagues. I'm sure there are lots of guys in the minors or high school even who think it worked for whoever was current for Mm -hmm. them at the time. Fernando Valenzuela, uh, pops into my mind. You mentioned Cueto there. Uh, Tim Lincecum was a bit of an oddball as far as his Mm -hmm. entire delivery package. Right. So that, just standing out from the crowd is probably an advantage for a hitter in a, in a for a pitcher, pardon me, just in, in yeah. the sense that you mentioned that the hitters are not used to seeing this because 95% or 99% of the pitchers are basically coming from a very mm-hmm. similar sort of package. And anybody who yeah. alters it, all the sub submariners now, um, yep. Adam Simber, I mean, a guy sees that kind of stuff once every 10 games or something right. like that. It's got to be super hard to adjust to. Darren O'Day had a fairly lengthy career before he started to break down. So any kind of departure from the norm seems to be a plus. And I think this applies in other sports too. I know I, my wife and I watch a lot of tennis and there mm-hmm. are certain players who are renowned for being able to really alter the delivery of their serves in a way that other players find super confusing. Yeah. I mean, and it, it applies to the other side too, where, you know, there's a incentive to be abnormal in some way, you know, even if your fastball is objectively very good, you know, if it's coming in at the same, at about an average plane and, you know, no real deception in the delivery, it's really fast and it's about major league average in terms of break. 
a lot of times that pitch is going to get hit. And you're watching a guy throw a 99 miles per hour. Hunter Green's coming to mind as one example right now. (laughs) You're watching a guy throw a 98 or 99, and it's getting hit. And you're wondering, how could anyone hit this? It's coming in so fast. You know, it's the other side of the coin where if you're not different enough in some cases and, and your command's not precise, then bad things can happen because major league hitters are really good. And they get used to certain things. I read a book once. I don't remember why I read it, but uh, it turned out to be really interesting. It was by a, a British guy who was like a world-class level ping pong player. He he mm-hmm. played in, in the Olympics and that kind of stuff, and he was very successful. And he was also friends with a guy called Michael Steek, who was a German tennis player. And I, I believe he won a couple of grand slams, maybe the U.S. Open and perhaps Wimbledon. He was a servant volley player. And just to see what it would be like, this, this ping pong player says, can I go on a tennis court with you and try to return your serve? Cause Steak was known as a real big server and Steak says, sure, you know, why not? And, and so they go out on the tennis court and the, the serves were unreturnable for him as they would be for you or me or, or for any non-professional tennis player or at least experienced tennis player. Yeah. And the, the, the book was about written from the point of view, the ping pong player was talking about how athletes respond to the stimulus in front of them. And he said that even though he had, you know, you can know what kind of reflexes a world-class ping pong player has to have. He thought that was going to be enough. And he said, it's not because you just don't have the advantage of having seen it 10,000 times or 20,000 times. So that all of these very small differences in in the toss of the ball, in the, in the angle of the arm, in the face of the racket, all these kind of things that other pro tennis players pick up instantly. The way that Barry Bonds picked up instantly, uh, there's stories about him sitting on the bench and calling the pitches, even as the pitcher was not even through his delivery. And then they switched places and Steak, who prided himself on his reflexes, played ping pong with this guy and he couldn't touch him because at that level, you know, these, these differences require you to have trained your fast response, non-thinking part of your brain to recognize and respond to things. And if getting back to our pictures, if you're doing something that really defies that example that's in the person's mind, then it's probably going to lead to a certain amount of success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I even have a friend who is the best sports stacker in the world. So I don't know if you've ever seen this, but um, essentially it's stacking cups really fast. Yeah, yeah. Doing it. His hands can work insanely fast and, you know, do it in all these cycles in like seconds. But if you give him just normal, like red solo cups, he can't do it because there have to be like these certain um sports stacking cups in order to do it um so that's another even you know just something that a sport no one ever thinks of and probably a lot of people never heard of but um once you get to such a high level of competition in anything that requires reflexes any small change just can be devastating but uh, your friend is never going to lack for a job cleaning up after county picnics. <laughs> There's always a future in something. Yeah, there are these crazy sports, you're right. And then you look at them and you realize these people have put in, um, I think Malcolm Gladwell, or might not have been him, but somebody did a book about the the 10,000 hour rule that you have to do something yeah. for 10,000 hours to, to pick up expertise at it. And then it just gets better from there. And uh, I think, I think it's obviously true. I mean, and that's not just for physical stuff, but 
I mean, I've been writing since I was a kid and that's a long time ago. I'm in my sixties now. And yeah. some people find it quite remarkable that I can write things as quickly as I can and as accurately as I can because they can't, but then they do whatever they do, accountancy, and they can fill out a tax form like nobody's business, and I struggle with it. And we all just get better at that, and it's when something comes along that flummoxes us or is out of the ordinary that we have to stop, and then we struggle. And I, I think there's analogies for that in all of our lives at work, at home, in all this kind of stuff. It's really interesting stuff. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Tanner, in the May 10th edition of the report, you studied two lefties after a previous week also with two lefties. Is there anything special with left-handers that makes them more subject or appropriate for pitch mix analysis? <laughs> Uh, that was just a coincidence, although I am a lefty and was a left-handed pitcher in my playing days, so I'm also always partial to lefties. Um, nothing's more aesthetically pleasing to me baseball-wise than a lefty who commands the zone with a deep arsenal in the Jamie Moyer or Cliff Lee molds. As you can tell, I grew up as a Phillies fan and still am right now, so those are the guys that stick out to me. But Also not much of a fastball. Nope, not much of a fastball, but just being able to pitch at that level, work in and out, up and down, change velocities, all that kind of stuff is just so cool to watch. And lefties, for some reason, seem to be the guys that really stick out in that vein, the crafty lefty, as you will. I wonder if the, based on what we were talking about before, the the lack of ordinariness is a uh, it must be a benefit for left-handers because so few of them play. Uh, getting back to tennis, uh, Rafael Nadal always thought that being a left-handed player, in fact, he's a right-handed man. He does everything else right-handed, including throwing a ball, all this kind of stuff. But his coaches, when he was a little kid, made him play left-handed because they thought, there's not that many of you guys out there, and it'll yeah. be an advantage because not many people uh, see left-handed tennis players. And a reporter once asked him, do you have trouble with left-handed tennis players? And he said, yeah, there's very few of us out there. But it was, mm -hmm. it was a plus. Is, do you think that's also the same for baseball pitchers, that left-handers have that kind of small but important built-in edge? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I can even see that. Um, so the numbers don't play out really at the major league level because at the major league level, all these hitters have seen thousands of pitches. And, you know, so platoon advantages tend to rule out because – you know, they've seen righties and lefties, but at the high school level, I'm helping out with a high school team right now, and it's a team of all right-handed hitters, but they hate hitting off of left-handed pitchers just because they haven't seen that many of them. Um, and, you know, obviously, by the strict platoon advantage, you would think they would love it if a lefty's pitching, but every time a lefty pitches, they complain because I hate lefties. I never hit off a lefty, you know, all this kind of stuff, so... I think it's true more um, when for less experienced players, for sure. And if you're going to the major league levels or minor league levels, you have to be even more unique, I think, to really stand out. You said uh, left-hander Shane McClanahan of Tampa has, and I'm quoting here, found a new level of success by evolving as a complete pitcher in 2022. What has Shane McClanahan done to earn such praise? Okay, so McClanahan's entire arsenal has been upgraded, as he's now throwing a fastball of better velocity and vertical movement, but he's also improved the movement of all of his off-speed pitches, his slider, his curveball, and his changeup, especially his curveball and his changeup. 
and these two pitches, his curveball and his changeup, have improved to the point of surpassing his slider, and McClanahan has adjusted his pitch mix accordingly, throwing more curveballs and changeups and fewer fastballs and sliders. The curveball is now a plus pitch that can look to be a double plus pitch when he throws it correctly. I saw some video of some curveballs that I don't think there are many pitchers in the major leagues who can throw a better curveball than that. Um, and he now commands the changeup, or he has so far in 2022, well down in arm side. And that pitch now has enough separation from his fastball and velocity and movement to be an above average offering. So hitters now have four pitches to worry about. Where McClanahan last year was really mostly a fastball slider guy who mixed in a few curveballs. Now he's a four pitch pitcher um, who can really confuse hitters um, and set up his fastball. His fastball is above aver- well above average in terms of velocity, but unless it's at the upper end of its range, 98 or 99, it's really not that special in terms of movement. Um, but it sets up his old arsenal, which is special really well. And he seems to have realized that, you know, the fastball is, he's not a, a traditional, he's a power pitcher, but he's not a guy who's just going to blow fastball after fastball past major league hitters. So he's really evolved to upgrading his curveball, upgrading his changeup and becoming more of a complete pitcher. You mentioned a term double plus when you were discussing mm-hmm. Shane McClanahan just now. And I'm wondering, is that a, a term of art or is that something that actually is statistics? Oh, that's a scouting term. Um, so that's a 70 grade, um, pitch on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. Um, so, you know, a plus fastball or a plus pitch would be a 60 and a double plus would be a 70 on that scale. I don't actually know if there's another term for an 80 people just call it an 80, but, um, if I'm referring to a 70, just based on, you know, all that, the scouting I did, um, in that um, year when I was the um, doing scouting articles and have done scouting since. So still some of that scouting lingo um, sticks with me. Is that objective or somewhat subjective? So it's somewhat subjective um, in this case. Um, you could use a term or one of the metrics like stuff plus or pitching bot or whatever it is to grade pitches, but in this case, it was really, I watched a lot of film on McClanahan, um, and I was just kind of looking at, you know, having watched so many major league pitches, um, I can pretty confidently um, talk about, you know, a pitch as a plus or a double plus, and it lines up with the results of it, but too, um, which is also something you're always looking for validation-wise, but in this case, it was more of a subjective scouting opinion. In your McClanahan article, you also mentioned that he dropped the release point of some of those improved breaking pitches, the curveball and changeup in particular, a little less than a quarter of an inch, as you described it. The release point is down a little bit, which adds to the deception. But I was wondering, given the uh, visual acuity of major league hitters, is dropping your release point by a quarter of an inch subject you to the possibility of tipping the pitches? Absolutely it can. It depends on, you know, if it's a bit, um, bigger change than you can tip your pitch. Absolutely. Um, you know, and some hitters are better at picking that up than others. Um, and you know, and the best of the best can see even really small changes. So maybe there's a potential issue there down the line, but for now it doesn't seem like anyone's, um, really 
really capitalized on it. <laughs> it's, it certainly doesn't. Uh, I watched Shane McClanahan pitch the other night and I thought, man, this guy could, should be a Cy Young contender. If he keeps doing this, he's, he's got yeah. the whole package with the mm-hmm. multiple pitches. There's a couple of other guys I think are in the early running as well. And maybe we can yeah. talk about that later, but, uh, you also assessed longtime top prospect Mackenzie Gore, uh, a very frustrating player for any fantasy manager who had him as a top prospect and he just never seemed to pan out. And the rap was that he had inconsistent mechanics, especially the high leg kick, which led to control and command issues, especially with his fastball. What has he done to fix that issue to the point where he seems to be at least homing in on the uh, expectations that we had? So he simplified his delivery, um, especially I watched the, for that, that one, that one was really film heavy, um, for doing my gore piece, but he's really simplified it with a slightly smaller leg kick, um, from the windup and not raising his arms straight to the sky at the apex of his delivery, um, as like leg kick, like Kershaw does. There were always the comparisons to Kershaw when he was in minor leagues, because you don't see that many guys who did that particular um, thing in their delivery, but he seems to have really um, eliminated that and um, sh- shortened his leg kick. And he's got Gore had gotten to the point where he could no longer make that complicated delivery work to throw strikes. Um, as we talked about earlier with you know Cueto, Tion, all those guys, it's great if you can have a deceptive delivery, um, the full hitters. But if you can't repeat that um, delivery, whatever it is, then you're not going to throw strikes. And he had gotten to the point where he was a mess that way. So he needed to give up potentially a little bit of deception in exchange for being able to throw strikes. Um, it was not a quick and easy process. As people who follow Gore's career a little bit know, it's been really interesting because he went through what people called the yips at one point. He had so many things where people were almost some people were almost wondering whether he was still a prospect just because it was so much of a mess, but he seems to have figured out a delivery that is working for him now. Um, and it's, he's such an, he still has that athleticism that allowed that delivery to work in the first place. It's just now he's figured out a way to be consistent, um, to something that's working for him now. You said in the article that, Mackenzie Gore is still not a finished product. He's a work in progress. What does he need to do to really ascend to that top starter kind of potential that we thought we saw back when he was a a prospect? So the next step for him is really to figure out how to command at least one of his off-speed pitches consistently. Right now he's throwing about 66% fastballs and the pitch has been really good. You know, there's a reason he was a top prospect in the first place. The fastball has been dominating hitters, um, whether it's up or it's down, or he's been moving the pitch around. But he's yet to find an off-speed pitch he can consistently command well enough to be a true put-away pitch. Um, Gore's slider appears to be closest to reaching that point and has the potential to be an above-average offering. But his curveball and his changeup, his curveball could be above-average. His changeup from my scouted looks looks to be potentially about an average offering. They, they could be there. He could be a true four-pitch pitcher at some point. Um, and, you know, there's still maybe not ace potential, but like solid number two or three potential in there. But it's still a little bit um, a ways away because it's probably going to take him a while to really get that consistency with his off-speed. Um, 
the first step, you know, was simplifying his delivery and everything was just getting him. I'm sure the emphasis was probably just be able to command your fastball. Uh, was like the first step of getting back to, you know, the potential he was reached. But it still means that there's a little ways to go because you don't go from being as far away from a quality major league pitcher as he was, you know, just like two years ago with all the delivery and or a year and a half ago to be in, you know, a polished top of that rotation starter right away. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's looking a lot better than it did. And Tanner, last July when you were on the show, we talked about the then current crackdown that Major League Baseball was doing on the sticky stuff, the stuff that pitchers were using to increase the spin on the ball. And we talked about how analysts were coming to grips (laughs) with the uh, situation. What is the status of the sticky stuff ban now? And is it still working to keep spin rates down or are they climbing back up? So this is interesting. I did a little bit of research before coming on today to have a definitive answer for you. And the numbers were in line with what I've been observing. Um, I broke down the data for four scenes into three time periods, 2021 before enforcement, 2021 from June on, which is after enforcement, and the 2022 data. What I found is what used to be called um, Bauer units. We probably need a new name for that one. But Uh, which is just dividing spin rate by pitch velocity um, in order to standardize it across um, spin by velocity because spin goes up as velocity goes up, uh, spin goes down as velocity goes down. But by using this um, metric that divides spin rate by pitch velocity, I found that it dropped significantly after enforcement last year um, and has stayed about the same level as it was after enforcement in 2022. But I also, on the other hand, looked at vertical movement for fastballs because I had been looking at a lot of pitchers that their vertical movement has increased a little bit this year, which is, you know, out of line with the sticky stuff enforcement and spin rates going down. And I found that to be true as while the adjusted spin rates are equivalent to what they were after the sticky stuff man last year, Vertical fastball movement, which had dropped to be in line with the decrease in spin rates after the sticky stuff enforcement, are essentially equivalent to what they were before the sticky stuff ban. So the fastball is moving vertically about what it was before sticky stuff ban, even though the spin rates are down. And that's probably because of the new balls that are moving differently. And that's what I've read articles about pitchers even talking about that too, about how, you know, the, the ball, new ball, it seems to be conducive to that while it's um, problematic potentially in other ways um, that seems to be um, doing that in terms of the vertical movement, even though pitchers no longer have access to as much spin enhancing substances as they did before. Something I read on that topic was that the raised, slightly raised seams on the balls are interacting with the air more aggressively to create the same or more amount of uh, vertical movement or movement in general than, uh, than was only possible with increased velocity, as you mentioned. Is the same thing true of, of breaking pitches that are curving and dropping? Um, so I didn't look into that. Um, I was only looking at the fastballs just to, um, but I think my guess is yes, but I don't, I don't have the same data and research to tell you definitively. And before we move on to Boons and Banes, Tanner, uh, in 30 seconds or a minute, 
How can fantasy managers take advantage of the information and reporting that you and, and analysts like you are doing? So when you're looking at pitch movement statistics, I'm trying to stay away from raw totals with this new environment, such as total RPMs or raw amount of vertical movement. Instead, I'm looking at comparative metrics like vertical movement above average, which puts pitches into league context and compares them to pitches within two miles per hour or half a foot of release and extension. And I'm looking at percentile numbers for pitches um, for fastball spin um, because, you know, the comparatively of percentile is still compared to peers um, within the 2022 environment. And pit, fantasy managers can look at pitchers that are gaining notable vertical movement above average, for example, on their four seamers in this environment, or that are moving up significantly in fastball spin percentile and gain value there. But the thing to avoid, which I have to say check myself on sometimes, is looking at a change in something and getting excited when the results aren't matching up for the pitch. If a pitch, for example, if pitcher's fastball was previously getting crushed, he adds vertical movement, he adds velocity, he adds spin, and it's still getting crushed. Maybe it was still a bad pitch for a number of reasons. Um, there are so many facets to go into whether a pitch and a pitcher succeeds or not, as we talked about in the Ryan segment that sometimes the only thing that can capture enough of the total effect is the results that the pitch is getting, even though they're volatile over small samples. Um, sometimes, you know, that's the only thing that's capturing all the variables that go into it. How long does it typically take for these kind of changes or these kind of metrics that you're using to stabilize and to be more um, accurate and predictive of pitcher performance? So the good news is for pitch movement, it goes, it's really quick um, for stuff like fastball velocity and pitch movement stabilizes really quickly uh, over a small sample of pitches. Um, so that's kind of the advantage, one of the advantages of this type of analysis versus, um, you know, looking at stuff like K rates and walk rates is maybe that stuff is, you know, still up in the air, you know, as the weather changes are real into may or june but if a guy's throwing two miles per hour harder and you see a couple of starts of that even just a couple of starts of that or he's you know getting significantly more movement on his fastball you can be pretty confident that those changes are likely pretty real um it's not as clear on the downside part of it early in a season um that's also something to be cautious about is you know pitch velocity generally increases as the months get warmer and also, especially this year with the abbreviated spring training and stuff, that there are pitchers who look like their stuff has um, decreased in meaningful ways. But I'm less, um, I'm more cautious about writing about them and really saying that those changes are real because just because of so many factors that are working against that add potential error terms that make that more potentially due to chance right now. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Tanner, as you might remember, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. These are players you like for the rest of the season. We call them boons and players you don't like for the rest of the season, typically based on value and perceived value. But uh, let's start with the boons in the American League. Who's a hitter you think who could be a boon for the rest of this season? So hitting wise, the way I'm approaching things right now is a little bit systematically because we don't know what the ball is going to do, um, you know, into the later months as the weather gets hotter. I'm really looking for plate discipline. 
So one hitter I'm liking for the AL is J.P. Crawford. Um, I'm really liking how he's coming into his own plate discipline-wise. He was an elite plate discipline guy in the minor leagues, and it took a little while at the major league level. Now it's living up to his minor league track record with almost as many walks as K's. This is an out of nowhere. This is something that he did his entire minor league um, career. And his bad ball authority is slightly up. So I think he might be coming into his prime. Um, and there may be managers who aren't quite buying into that yet, but I think that's pretty real. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a boon? Um, Gene Segura, um, the guy who J.P. Crawford was traded for. Um, Segura is another guy who doesn't strike out, but his bad ball authority is better than ever by a large margin. Um, so guy doesn't strike out now crushing the ball is pretty good. The surface stats are good, but not, but unspectacular at this point. And now is probably the best time to buy over to the mound. Who's an American league pitcher who could be a boon. Um, Nestor Cortez. I broke him down in an arsenal report recently. Essentially, he's using his cutter to great effect this year, over 40% of his offerings. He's gained great success by mostly focusing on his cutter and his four-seamer, which have both improved stuff-wise this year. He's not a guy whose ERA is going to be around one like it is right now. But if you have league mates who are expecting the wheels to completely fall off because of how unconventional he is and are looking to um, sell high, now might not be the worst time to buy high if depending on what the value is. And in the National League, who's a pitcher who could be a boon? Um, Eric Lauer. I wrote about him in the Arsenal report, but essentially he his stuff has improved. The four-seamers better, cutter, slider, and they all work well off of each other. And if you look at his results, really, from the last year to this year, he's pitched like a top-of-the-rotation guy, but he's still kind of anonymous, I think. Um he, I think that he's a pretty, maybe not an ace, but a top, somewhere near the top of the rotation guy who still may be valued by some as a middle of the rotation guy. Is Milwaukee doing something? They, they're just really good um, at developing pitching. And I think they have a really good um, organizational culture of collaboration from what I can tell. Um that has really benefited them from up and down, even though the minor league system maybe isn't great right now at the major league level, they're really getting the best out of a lot of guys. Over we go to the Banes. Then uh, we'll once again, start in the American league with a hitter who could be a Bane for the rest of 2022. Yeah. So Fran Reyes is my guy here. Um, you know, he's had this track record of hitting a lot of home runs and driving in runs and, fantasy managers may be want, tempted just to stay the course because he's been pretty consistent in doing that. But his K rate's a mess, and his walk rate's a mess, too. He's just nowhere near the guy that he, – he was never, like, a traditionally great plate discipline guy, but it's gotten to the Jorge Alfaro levels of unplayable. Um, he's always the first guy I think of in that vein. But there may be an injury there. There may be – I don't know what's going on, but I don't want any part of it. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a Bane? Avasio Garcia um, is the guy that I'm looking at. He's a guy that changed teams and signed a big contract. He went from Milwaukee to uh, Miami. His plate discipline's also a mess right now. He's hitting a lot of ground balls. Um, There may be an injury there. There was um, a back injury at one point that sidelined him for a couple of days that 
Um, he came back from, but back injuries have a tendency to linger. Um, with the underlying metrics not looking good, the change in scenery, and all these different factors, um, this may be a good opportunity to sell if someone's still buying into him bouncing back to his previous levels of production. Back to the mound we go. American League pitcher who could be a vein. So Noah Syndergaard is the guy I'm looking at. And he's, you know, I like I said before, I'm a little bit cautious about talking about pitchers whose stuff has declined. But Syndergaard's coming back from Tommy John surgery and has had all this time to rehab. And we know Tommy John, it can go either way. You know, guys, some guys do their rehab really well, come back, um, and are, their stuff has improved. Some guys, they're never the same just because it's a risky procedure. He's come back, and he's throwing like 93, 94, and he's getting good results right now. So some fantasy managers who aren't paying attention to that may say, oh, he's back to the guy that he was, but he's not. He's looking like a shell of himself, and now is probably the best time to sell before the results start to line up with that because he's never had, even at his peak, he never ha- really had particularly good command um, of his pitches and or really good shape characteristics on his fastball. He was the guy who really needed his fastball velocity. Um, so I'm just not buying into all of a sudden he's now a command pitcher um, with all these off-speed pitches that can make 93-94 work consistently. And finally, who's a National League pitcher who could be a bane? So Josiah Gray is a guy I'm looking at. Um, you know, he was the big top prospect, came back in the Max Scherzer, Trey Turner deal. One of the shining um, beacons of hope right now in Washington. Um, but his fastball is a home run pitch. Um, essentially, it's a pitch that's up in the zone and hitters just aren't having that tough of a time hitting it out of the yard. And the control's um, not good enough. I'm... I watch him sometimes and I see a Dylan Bundy type with worse control. Um, and he'll have some periods of dominance with off speed because he has good off speed pitches and his K rate at times will be enticing like Bundy, but the overall results will likely be over underwhelming given his prospect pedigree, especially who he was traded for. And at any given time, he's a candidate to blow up your ERA with an eight or nine run um, appearance. Tanner Smith's Boons, J.P. Crawford of Seattle, Gene Segura of Philadelphia, Nestor Cortez of the Yankees, and Eric Lauer of Milwaukee. His Baines, Fran Reyes of Cleveland, Avisail Garcia of Miami, Noah Syndergaard in Los Angeles, and Josiah Gray, formerly of Los Angeles, now in Washington. This has been terrific. Tanner, uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Mm-hmm. So every week, the Arsenal Report will come out on Tuesdays. Um... And you can find, I'll post those articles on Twitter, um, too. And on Twitter, I'm at TannerBall26. Um, so that's, yeah. Uh, who's this next week's pitchers? Uh, I haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, I haven't quite narrowed it down, and I don't want to <laughs> ruin the surprise on it. So. Okay, and uh, Tannerball 26, why 26? Is that Chase Utley you were talking about earlier? Chase Utley, there you go. Yep, <laughs> that was my favorite player. So, um, yep, I always work in 26 when I can. Well, good for you. Uh, it's, all, it's always good to have references to your childhood the sports heroes 
I'm not mm-hmm. going to get into details, but a lot of my passwords have uh, my favorite quarterback when I was a kid is uh, built in there somehow, and or his name yeah. or anything like that. So yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from, uh, Tanner. This mm-hmm. has been not only entertaining but informative, which, uh, as you said, are the goals of your column. So uh, you're living up to your expectations, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time. I hope we get to catch up again later in the year. Yeah, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm hoping to come back at some point. Um, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our time here. Tanner Smith writes the weekly Arsenal report at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In The Speculator, columnist Ryan Bloomfield looks at some possible early hidden injuries, including Pete Alonzo, Shane Bieber, A.J. Pollock, Trevor Story, and Joey Votto. In The Big Hurt, analyst Matt Cederholm looks at some confirmed injuries, including to Chris Taylor, Carlos Correa, and Chris Paddock. And in Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd looks at five American leaguers, including Salvador Perez, Trey Mancini, and Nestor Cortez who's also Tanner Smith's American League pitcher, Boone. And those are just a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matthew Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. We'll start with uh, Philadelphia and the question of who's playing center field. The team optioned Matt Veerling to the minors. We talked about Matt Veerling and that whole center field situation in Philadelphia in earlier shows. Uh, Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today. What's the latest news coming out of Philadelphia as far as who's in center? Yeah, it sounds a bit like a who's on first routine that Abbott Costello did, right? So yeah. Veerling started the season <laughs> Veerling started the season in a platoon in center field, but he struggled. Uh, he lost time after the Phillies signed Roman Quinn. And over 47 at bats, Veerling had a 185 expected batting average, 17 expected power index. Might return later in 2022, but his chances of regular or even semi-regular playing time are not real great. Uh, Quinn may get a few more at bats with Veerling in the minors, but fantasy managers may want to keep an eye out for Mickey Moniak's return. Uh, the Phillies' number former number one pick seemed to have earned a prominent role in the Philadelphia outfield after compiling a 1.286 OPS over 35 spring training at bats, but he was sidelined just before opening day with a wrist fracture. 
uh, reportedly close to a rehab stint at this point, and so maybe back to take over that center field spot. I think that's pretty interesting news because, as you said, Moniak was uh, hitting the cover off the ball, really, in spring training. And, of course, all the usual caveats apply. The pitching is not as good. Uh, you know, everybody's a little rusty. It could be just a hot streak. 35 games is not really that tremendous a sample, especially since most of the time the players are not getting four or five plate appearances per game because they have to look at 100 guys. So the starters will get maybe two and then and the rest of them's kind of scrambling around for uh, – for one shot and uh what did you say he had uh, 35 spring training at bats boy that's not a lot to make a, a judgment about no it's not and you know maniac is over the last two seasons maniac has gotten 47 uh, major league at bats and compiled a great 128 batting average uh a, a 141 expected batting average uh so you know uh, he's got a lot of work to do obviously before uh, before he's going to tear the cover off the ball at the major league level with against real pitching. So, I, you know, I probably won't be jumping on the waiver liar for, for Mickey Moniak at this point. No, nor will I. But, you know, there is something to be said for playing time. And if, if Moniak does even capture two-thirds of a 1286 OPS, then that's a 800 OPS and that plays. Well, that's true. That, 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 that does. Uh Right now, a 60% ground ball rate at the major league level, which doesn't uh, help a whole lot. Uh, 28% fly ball rate. Uh, you know, so the, the, he, he was a number one pick for a reason. So, so perhaps he'll suddenly develop. But uh, someone to keep your eye on, maybe. I think I'll be watching more for average and speed and run scored. I don't think that there's really much chance that Moniac's going to be a power source at all. Uh, speaking of power sources, or I guess I should say former power sources, the St. Louis Cardinals uh, demoted Paul DeYoung, who's been having all kinds of trouble to shortstop there. That leaves a, a gap in the uh, in the Cardinals infield. So who moves over and starts filling in for DeYoung at shortstop? Yeah, DeYoung hit 74 homers in his first three seasons with the Cardinals, including 30 of them in 2018. Uh, that led the Cardinals to sign him to a six-year contract, includes $9 million in 2023, uh, and he's been in decline since 2018 so far in 2022, hitting only 130, uh, 177 expected batting average, one home run, and 77 at-bats. Uh, so we've made a major reduction in his projected playing time. Uh, we'll leave him with a good number of projected at-bats on the assumption the Cardinals will bring him back. They're paying him a lot of money, after all, uh, if he begins to hit at uh, AAA Memphis. Uh, the expectation is that Tommy Edmond and Brendan Donovan will both get time at short with the young and the minors. Uh, Cardinals also brought up 27-year-old Kramer Robertson to provide some infield depth. Uh, Imando Sosa, who was productive for St. Louis in 2021 with a 248 expected batting average, six homers, four steals, uh, is currently on the IL. He could get plenty of it blats once he regains his health. Uh, one other name to keep in mind is Nolan Gorman. Uh, Cards number two prospect have been playing second in the minors. If Edmund winds up playing a lot of shortstop, Gorman might uh, find some time at second base in the near future. So a lot of moving parts at this point for St. Louis. Uh, just keep an eye on who's playing and see, see if any of them happen to be productive. Nolan Gorman is a top prospect, but they sure have been lollygagging about bringing him up. He, he certainly doesn't seem to have a lot to prove at AAA anymore, but they've been reluctant. And St. Louis is a good organization, Nick, and this is what worries me. Ordinarily, you'd think if they thought he was going to be a, a positive contributor especially at the scale that his minor league numbers might suggest that they would have brought him up or they certainly would given the circumstances with Paul DeYoung. And yet they're, they're reluctant and that 
causes me a bit of concern. As I said, they know what they're doing over in St. Louis. Yeah, they seem to know what they're doing over in St. Louis. And so you're right, that does cause quite a bit of concern uh, in terms of why why they haven't brought him up uh, sooner. So uh, this is just one to keep your eye on, not something to jump on, I think, immediately. Yeah, unfortunately these days, Nick, isn't it the case that we have to jump immediately, even if we're not really 100% confident that it's the right move? Somebody in your league will probably grab Nolan Gorman if the league rules allow it, and if if they don't and he comes up and goes into your fab process, then there's going to be some pretty aggressive bidding, I dare say, just because people want to bet on that on the optimism that uh, Nolan Gorman is going to hit the ground running. Yeah, I think that's true. And especially if you have a reserve roster and a reserve spot, that's the kind of thing that guys jump on right away and, and tuck him away to see for a few weeks what's going to happen before they have to pay too much for him. Moving on to San Diego, some good news for the Padres for a change. They get to activate a couple of players. Uh, Will Myers, Luke Voigt was uh, activated, hit a couple of home runs right away. And they sent down top prospect shortstop C.J. Abrams. Uh, Jock Thompson covered all of this for playing time today. So what's the shakeout once the dust settles? Well, most of the playing time adjustments have already been made in advance of the moves and uh, lots of uh, lots of to unpack, though, here. Uh, inexperienced Abrams struggled, uh, 543 OPS over 65 plate appearances in his first attempt at the highest level. He'll head to AAA for his first go around there, but seems likely to return later in the season, perhaps as an outfielder. Uh, that move had been expected following, uh, the waiver pickup of, uh, infield utility Sergio Alcantara, who now projects to help utility Haseon Kim hold down the shortstop spot until Fernando Tatis returns, or at least for the immediate future. As anticipated, Myers and Voigt returned to San Diego in their respective, most of the time, right field and DH spots. Uh, Matt Beatty had been placed on the IL Monday with a shoulder impingement. Uh, for all of his past week's adjustments to the San Diego playing time projections, check the San Diego team page at Baseball HQ. Uh, but it's, it'll be good for San Diego to have Voigt and, and Myers back, definitely. I I know Voigt is ticketed to play DH primarily because Eric Hosmer contrary to what everybody was told to expect is uh, he was leading the league in batting average the last time I checked but he's certainly hitting the ball very well there's a lot of uh, of batting luck involved his batting average on balls in play what we call hit rate at baseballhq.com was off the charts and we always expect that to regress back to a more normal level usually in the 30 to 33 percent range for for good major league hitters and Hosmer hasn't been a good or great major league hitter I guess for the last couple of years but he's a capable major league hitter he's certainly proved that and once you display a skill you own it as Ron Chandler always said so I just wondered when Voigt got activated whether Eric Hosmer's looking over his shoulder yeah, the way Hosmer did hit him, probably not. I, we've, we've indicated a playing time gain of about 10% for Luke Voigt. Uh, so, you know, th- there's certainly something that could could happen there with with Hosmer playing time. But uh, the way he's playing right now, uh, they're not going to move things around too much. And we'll get Voigt uh, back in at the DH spot. We could subtitle this next one, The Rich Get Richer, or at least The Rich Stay Rich. Los Angeles Dodgers needed some pitching help, so they called up Ryan Pepio, who made his debut for the Dodgers. Uh, Jock Thompson covered this in playing time today, and uh, Matt St. Germain also had it in uh, our daily call-ups report, so we've got good intel on Ryan Pepio. What do we know about him and his prospects for success in fantasy terms? Well, you know, Ryan Pepio is a... Uh Ryan Pepeo uh, did, did fairly well in that first start. They only left him out there for three innings. 
uh, didn't allow an earned run. Uh, walked five in that three innings, only struck out three. That's uh, certainly a, the kind of thing that we look at and say, eh, I'm not so sure. But uh, Ryan Pepio was a surprise third rounder as a junior out of Butler in 2017. Uh, at this point, uh, whatever magic is being cast out in the Dodgers organization, they've gone and manifested another uh, mid-rotation starter out of the air. Uh, six for three, 215 pounds. Uh, this guy can easily handle a starter's load. Uh, on his frame is, is the knock has been that he's been overly reliant on an already plus changeup when he threw even more than he threw his fastball and he liked confidence in his breaking stuff. So those were the problems he had coming into the Dodgers organization that combined with a significant head whack and an inconsistent release point led to the native Indiana from losing the strike zone for long disastrous stretches. But went on, he has the stuff to, to mow down premium lineups. Uh, stop me if you heard this before, but his fastball took off once he was in the Dodgers organization and his control reached acceptable levels, even if there's still some concern about that. Had a breakout 2021 after focusing more on developing his fastball, uh, though the breaking ball was still lagging. Uh, dominated AA Tulsa before struggling some at AAA Oklahoma City. Still the four-seam fastball was now sitting in mid-90s. Excellent shape, movement at the top of the zone, garnering plus grades, and the changeup was more of a devastating offering. At that point, uh, a kind of a plus-plus offering was what we would call it. Uh, near impossible to square up, uh, let alone make contact with. That two-pitch combo would have made him uh, excellent for the back of the bullpen. And coming into 2022, big concerns were home runs allowed, command, development of a third pitch. And he made stride in all of those areas. After giving up 19 home runs at 101 innings pitched, giving up only one in 26 innings pitched this year. Command is still shaky. We saw that in that first start. Uh, but that's an acceptable trade-off considering that he is now working in his slider almost equally to his changeup. So uh, some command issues are to be expected. Uh, so third third breaking ball attempt after shelving a cutter and a curve. Slider is now flashing as an above-average pitch, hitting nearly uh, 2,800 RPMs. All combined, a 17% swinging strike rate, 33% strike rate. Uh, high-octane swing-and-miss stuff. If the slider development holds, he has the makings of more than a mid-rotation starter, and he's certainly in the right organization to uh, to maximize the skills. Uh, so uh, kind of a so-so major league debut, but if he's on the waiver wire, he's a guy I might take uh, take a, uh, a chance on. And again, uh, the organization has the kind of reputation and should have the kind of reputation that makes you feel pretty comfortable with a guy like this who struggles in his debut, but you know, you put yourself in this kid's position. He's, what, 23 years old or something like that. And all of a sudden, you know, yesterday you were pitching in Oklahoma City in front of, you know, 2,200 people or whatever. And now here you are in Los Angeles, California, home of one of the great franchises in Major League history. And you're standing on a on a Major League mound for the very first time. Gosh, if it was me, I, I'm sure I'd walk more than five guys. Yeah, you think it might, might be some nerves in that uh, in that situation? Very definitely. So an acceptable first start and a guy to keep your eye on very definitely, especially in the Dodgers organization. Yeah, all of us have had that experience of stepping up in level, whatever job it is that you do. Uh, you know, if you go from teaching at a, at a community college to teaching at Harvard, I bet that first lecture doesn't go that well. Uh, staying on... Uh, 
National League news, Nick, uh, Luis Garcia, like we need another Luis Garcia in the major leagues. It's already really difficult to, to work uh, your spreadsheets because of all the Luis Garcias that we have, but there's another one coming. He's getting ready at shortstop for Washington in the minor leagues. Uh, Alain DeLeonardis does a great job covering the National League East for playing time tomorrow, and he took an in-depth look at Luis Garcia, the shortstop, and what did Alain DeLeonardis find out? Well, you know, rebuilding teams, as, as Elaine said, uh, often are accused, and rightly so, of holding back prospects with the excuse of they need to work on their defense. Um, and in the case of Luis Garcia, that excuse may actually hold a lot of water. A uh, 22-year-old made his major league debut in 2020, wasn't overmatched to the plate for a player his age, uh, 668 OPS, 82 hard contact, expected hard contact index, 259 expected batting average. Uh, and last season saw him make some adjustments in his time with the Nationals. 686 OPS, 106 hard contact index, 286 expected batting average, but was exposed in the field when he transitioned back to shortstop in the wake of the Trey Turner trade and has really struggled to make plays. Uh, after making four errors in the early going this year at AAA, his defense has improved uh, at short, according to both AAA manager Matt LaCroix and Nationals manager Davey Martinez. Uh, General Manager Mike Rizzo had this to say during an interview with a local radio station. He said he's making tremendous, making a transformation back to shortstop full time, playing every day at shortstop this year. That's where we want him to play. We know he's the future of shortstop. We recognize that Escobar is struggling at the big league level and Louis is thriving at the minor league level offensively. But I want to make sure he's prepared to play all facets of the game in the big leagues when he gets there. Because when he gets here, he's going to play every day. We're going to rely on him because he's a big part of the future. So one thing is clear, his bat looks ready. Currently third in the International League among qualified batters with a 1.046 OPS. Uh, that gaudy stat comes with a 10.8% walk rate, 15.8% strikeout rate, uh, 276 ISO, six home runs and only 105 at-bats. So uh, at this point, he's kind of got a, a high 378 batting average on balls in play. So, uh, you know, so, some of that's going to come off. But plate discipline, power are basically carbon copies of last year's AAA exploits. 9.4% walk rate, 16.4% strikeout rate. Uh, this guy is, is someone to keep an eye on. Uh, keep in mind what the Jim Ranger said about his future playing time. When he does come up, the team is hoping that it's for good and that he's the long-term answer at shortstop. And of course, having been on the big league roster, he could be available in a lot of free agent pools. Uh, uh, there are a lot of leagues who don't let you pick up a, uh, a minor league prospect until he's playing, but a lot of leagues also have a rule that says once he's played, he stays in the pool, even if he's not back, in, in, he's, if, or even if he is back in the minor leagues. So there might be an opportunity. You need to check your free agent rules and your free agent list to see if uh, Luis Garcia might be somebody you can grab on the, on the cheap now because he's going to get more expensive later, especially if he comes up and, and hits like we think he can hit. Yeah, definitely. Given what they've, what they've said about that they want him to be the future at shortstop, once this guy comes up, he's going to play. Uh, but they're probably not going to bring him up until he's ready defensively to handle the major leagues. And, of course, that, again, gets back to his youth and, and inexperience. And then 
you pile all of that stuff together and sometimes even a good defender doesn't look so good because he's worrying about hitting or even worse for fantasy purposes, he comes up and he's worried so much about his fielding that it affects his approach at the plate and he starts pressing and all of that kind of stuff. We've seen that before. I don't think though, Nick, I don't think we can actually expect that to happen. I think it's more a case of we have to be prepared for if it does happen, maybe don't panic at least uh, right away. Right. I think you're right about that. Absolutely. Okay, Nick, thanks for bringing us up to date on the National League. And uh, Ray Murphy has been called away at the last minute, so let's you and I discuss the American League as well. And we can start in Texas, where off-season trade acquisition catcher Mitch Garver, who had been hitting in the middle of the Rangers' order, he's going on the IL through at least May 20th with what the team calls a forearm flexor strain. Boy, if that, if that was a pitcher, Nick, it'd be worse news. Now, the team recalled catcher Sam Huff from AAA, Rod Truesdell on this story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. How long does our Baseball HQ team think Garver's going to be out? Garver had been playing with uh, pain of that forearm inflammation, but Texas believes he can get rid of it with a short rest to let the inflammation simmer down. Uh, our team analysts say Garver should miss just the 10-day minimum and be back in the lineup after that. So Garver's fantasy managers can breathe a sigh of relief. In the meantime, there's going to be some benefit going to somebody. I mentioned that Sam Huff got called up, but uh, who's going to get the bulk of the extra playing time? Increase in playing time will go to Jonah Heim. Heim has been sensational in part-time play so far in 2022. A 1085 OPS, a 180 I ratio, 315 XBA, and 45 at-bats uh, through May the 10th. Also flashed some power with a 130 power index, but his expected power index doesn't support that. But that said, he's had very good strike zone control with twice as many walks as strikeouts. He'll have to look for playing time when Garver returns. That's something to keep in mind as you consider fab bids. But uh, there's always uh, the possibility of Garver playing at DH, which had been happening some even while his forearm was uh, was bothering him. And they can get both Garver and Heim in the lineup by having Heim catch and putting Garver in the DH spot. So if he keeps up the current pace, uh, plate skills support solid numbers in batting average and OBP, and Texas will find some at-bats for him. And what about the newly recalled Sam Huff, who's always been a player of interest to me? I don't know why, but he always looks good in the minors, that's for sure. Yeah, as you've said, Huff was recalled. He's shown some light tower power at AAA, seven home runs and just over 80 at-bats and a career-high 575 slugging percentage, and also been hitting respectably at Round Rock, 260 batting average. Uh, he's showing some newfound plate discipline, 10% walk rate, helping him to a career high minors on base percentage near 350. Now, on the other hand, he's striking out about 33% of his plate appearances. That's actually better than 39% of the minors last year, about equal to his limited career work in the majors. I like Sam Huff as a, of course, it depends on your league status. It may be no room on your roster for basically what amounts to a third catcher. But I don't know, every time I see Sam Huff swing a bat. It looks like he knows what he's doing with it. So, I mean, there are obviously a lot of questions, but keep keep your eye on Sam Huff. I think that you might be pleasantly rewarded, especially in keeper leagues, long-term leagues. Uh, moving on, Minnesota finally acknowledged that shortstop Carlos Correa is going to have to go on the IL with a bruised finger. Uh, man, a bruised finger can hurt. I can tell you from personal experience, so I'm not totally surprised by this, although they were downplaying it early on. They recently called up top prospect Royce Lewis, who's a shortstop by trade, although I think they were trying to work him in at the outfield a little bit. So is this the Wally Pip moment for uh, Lewis? 
Well, our team analysts still believe that this is a minor injury, as does our injury analyst, Max Cederholm. Uh, they're looking at Correa being out the minimum, and uh, the IL designation was backdated a few days, so maybe a week on the shelf at the, uh, at the time, present time. Um, I doubt Lewis will take Correa's place for the next 2,000 games. Uh, Lewis has all four starts at shortstop since Correa has been out, likely get some more reps at shortstop the next few days. We might see Lewis play some second uh, with uh, George Polanco sliding over to shortstop. He has one game at short this season, but all signs point to Lewis being the primary shortstop at this point. Assuming he gets some chances to play regularly while Correa is out, what is uh, Royce Lewis likely to do with the bat? Well, Lewis is a 9C prospect, all-star level potential with a middling chance of attaining that level, uh, just plain mashing at AAA. Uh, 310 average, 430 on base, 563 slugging percentage, 993 OPS. He had three home runs, eight stolen bases, 21 runs scored in 29 games, 20 strikeouts against 17 walks. Uh, In the majors, uh, not quite so handsome. 21 plate appearances in six games through Thursday. Decent 286 batting average, but no walks against four strikeouts, only one extra base hit, a double, no runs, no RBIs. Of course, we can't hold the runs and RBIs against him because that's a team thing. Because, But uh, Minnesota, I think they have aspirations. So Royce Lewis is going to have to do something pretty quick. And as you said, there was a pretty good power-speed combination going on in the minor leagues. I play in one league, uh, the Tout American League League, where we are allowed to pick up prospects before they're called up. And I thought I was going to really pull something by getting uh, Royce Lewis for a dollar and somebody bid two. So uh, Royce Lewis is no secret. So if you think you're going to get him on the cheap, you're probably not, and you need to adjust your thinking accordingly. In Tampa, the Rays got some good news. Man, they've had a lot of injuries, but they finally activated somebody. First baseman G-Man Choi comes off the I.L., after he had his elbow cleaned out. Uh, He had some loose bodies, I think they call it, like elbow chips or something like that, I expect. Uh, Chris Olson on the story for playing time today. I'm going to presume that Choi just slides back into his customary role. That's what Chris Olson thinks. Choi will return to the good side of a first-place platoon with Andy Diaz on the bad side. Uh, Choi was off to a fine start to the season, batting 283, 406 on base percentage, two homers, 10 RBIs. Uh, average was propped up by an unsustainable 50% hit rate. Playing time loser is probably Tyler Walls. He'll stay in the lineup at third base against left-handed pitchers as Diaz covers first in Choi's absence. But how much Walls will play against righties remains to be seen. Walls is a switch hitter who's fared a bit better against right-handed pitchers, including both his home runs this season. So his role may not evaporate completely. Chris Olson also analyzed the news that Tampa recalled infielder Vidal Bruhan from AAA. Lots of fantasy managers interested in Vidal Bruhan. What's Chris's take on his promotion? Bruhan got a start right away in right field, but his stay may not be as long as fantasy managers has hoped. A lot will depend on how quickly Manuel Margot recovers after leaving a game with a right hamstring discomfort. Margot missed two games due to his right hamstring uh, discomfort, which also cost him some time last season, but Tampa has not put Margot on the IL, so our team analysts believe he'll be active on Friday when the Rays face the division rival Blue Jays. Chris also noted that Bruhan might not be the panacea that fantasy managers were hoping for. He was hitting 300 with six stolen bases in the minors, but five caught stealings despite elite speed, and that's a worrying sign because that's nowhere near the, of course, the stolen base percentage that major league managers are going to require to give a guy the green light. And there's a, a, a truism in, in Major League Baseball, I think, that we've all come to understand and, and accept, and that is 
to be an effective base dealer, you need to be more than fast. You need to know what you're doing out there. There's a, there's a technique to it. There's a knowledge and uh, something that comes with experience. And Vidal Bruhan can run like the wind, but unfortunately he's getting gunned down a little too often for, uh, for a, a, a team like Tampa that has such good command of the, of the skills metrics and the, and the, the uh, stats that underlie all these things, they might tell Vidal Bruhan, you know, you gotta, you gotta get some coaching here, figure out what you're doing wrong, because we're not going to let you kill rallies as often as you help them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bruhan has been one of those, one of those prospects that has tantalized fantasy manager because of the, the gigantic stolen base, the totals that he's put up in the minor, but you're right. As long as he's getting caught stealing as much as he's stealing bases, they're not going to give him the green light at the major league level. Uh, and so that's probably the reason that he's not risen higher on prospect lists than he has. Uh, looks like the, the, the guy that can steal the most bases in the minors, but at the same time uh, may not do that much for your fantasy roster if the stat is stolen base minus caught stealing, at least at this point in his career. You know, I never thought of that, but that is a stat in a fair number of leagues as people try to make the game, the fantasy game, a little more like Major League Baseball. Most fantasy leagues, we should say, don't count uh, caught stealings, which means uh, that the damage that the caught stealing does isn't really reflected. Uh, stolen bases minus caught stealings or some formula like that is a good idea, I think. Uh, back to Minnesota. Right-hander Chris Paddock came over from San Diego in the offseason, and there was a lot of uh, excitement, I think, that Chris Paddock was going to get his career back on track in Minnesota, where they have a pretty good reputation for coaching and developing their pitchers. Now he's got a right elbow inflammation problem, and he's going to look for multiple medical opinions on what to do about it. And we know that one of the things <laughs> that you have to do about it involves uh, surgery that'll keep you off the shelf for quite a while. Rick Green is covering this story for Playing Time today. What's the latest on Chris Paddock? Paddock was a rebound candidate after he was traded to the Twins before the season, and now with elbow uh, and surgery mentioned in the same sentence, it sounds like it could be a lost season for him. Uh, Baseball HQ has started deducting playing time from Paddock, and are, we're monitoring the status before making more playing time adjustments. Uh, Dylan Bundy should be back soon from the COVID IL. He could easily slot into Paddock's rotation spot despite a 5.76 ERA and a 132 whip. Uh, Josh Winder. Had a couple of, uh, of uh, good starts, 161 ERA, sub one whip, but the wheels came off on Thursday night when he gave up uh, four earn, four runs, three of those earned, and nine base runners in just three and a third innings with two strikeouts. That being said, that was against Houston. His next scheduled start for Monday is at Oakland, and if you want to bounce back, it's hard to do better than facing Oakland. Yeah, that's the truth, boy. When you're looking at your two-start weeks and your, your pitcher matchups forecast, which is your, your bailiwick, I know the first thing I do every week is I look for who's playing against Oakland, who's playing against Pittsburgh, because obviously they can't hit, and it uh, just boosts the chances that you're going to get a decent start out of your starter. It's not a, it's not a sure thing by any means. Certainly a um, sort of mid-level starter can have a great game against Houston and, and, and a terrible game against Oakland, but... Playing the odds, you got to like a pitcher who's facing that Oakland A's lineup. Uh, it seems Ray and I have talked about Kansas City outfielder Edward Olivares more than any other player the past two seasons, mostly because he was 
in the majors, in the minors, in the majors, in the minors, taking that bust around Rock, but that streak is going to end for Oliveris. Unfortunately, not because he's been guaranteed a full-time spot, but he's got a right quad strain and he's going to miss at least six weeks on the IL. Jock Thompson covering this for playing time today. Who gets the playing time benefit with Olivares on the sideline? Yeah, horrible luck for Olivares, who seemed, finally seemed to be getting some regular playing time uh, thanks to other Kansas City injuries and his own 13-for-35 start. So on Tuesday night, Royals shifted Bobby Witt to shortstop, played bench infielder Emmanuel Rivera at third base. He's had four singles and 16 at-bats so far this year. This is a highly regarded prospect, a 7C in the Baseball HQ call-up report. Uh, Jock had early reported that Isabel and Oliveras would be sharing right field after the season-ending injury to Alberto Mondesi started a game of musical chairs in Kansas City. But Isabel, who is a, is a regarded prospect, not in the lineup versus a left-handed pitcher in a recent game, might be stuck in a platoon land. Yeah, that's Kyle Isbell. And I know a lot of people coming into the season were really looking forward to his call-up. But it looks like the team doesn't really think he's going to be able to hit left-handers, which would, of course, cut into his playing time and his fantasy value. Uh, Greg Jewett has a new column at BaseballHQ.com called Lineup Outlooks, and it's kind of a hyper-focused playing time today, playing time tomorrow hybrid where Greg looks at teams really focusing in on the batting orders. And in his latest column, Greg reports that this very slow start of Seattle's outfield super prospect, uh, Julio Rodriguez is quickly fading into history. Rodriguez is starting to look like another Rodriguez who had a slow start in Seattle. And he's really moving up the batting order. What's going on with this very exciting young power speed prospect? Rodriguez struggled mightily in his first 12 games in the majors, slashing 136, 208, 159, scoring four runs with two RBIs, four steals, and 48 plate appearances, batting in the lower third of the order. But over the last 19 games, 329 batting average, 382 on base, 457 slash, eight runs, first home run, nine RBIs, six more stolen bases, and 76 plate appearances. More importantly, Seattle has promoted Rodriguez to the three hole in the batting order, a significant increase in playing time for him if he keeps that slot. And that would translate into more counting stats. Julio Rodriguez is coming on really hard right now. He's a real exciting young player. And boy, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, any of the interviews that he's given or read any coverage of of, uh, Julio Rodriguez, Nick, but I'll tell you, this kid does not lack for confidence. (laughs) He he came into the season just telling everybody who'd listen, he's going to go 40-40, he's going to hit 310 or whatever. He had a lot of confidence. And at first, of course, you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, another blowhard who can't back up uh, words with actions. But as Greg Jewett reports, uh, Julio Rodriguez has really turned things around and he could really do some fantasy benefit in the middle of that order, hitting third Seattle's, uh, a team that looks like they're going to let him run. And if it's a big park, a little harder to hit home runs in, but if anybody can do it, it looks like it'll be this kid. He could be a, a real find. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, he's been, he's been an exciting player for several years, a highly rated prospect, and it looks like he may have a very decent, if uh, not more than that, season in the majors. And finally, we've had a couple of items from Jock Thompson. He writes the weekly Playing Time Tomorrow column, as well as the news coverage covering the American League West. And in the latest edition of Playing Time Tomorrow, he draws our attention to Oakland, speaking of their anemic offense, and uh, he wonders why they're not promoting a top prospect to help that offense. Uh, Who's the top gun, and why aren't the A's promoting him? 
His name is Shea Langoliers, and he's a catcher at AAA Las Vegas. Through 30 games, he has 111 at-bats. He's batting 306, on-base percentage over 400, slugging over 600. His 1043 OPS is third in the PCL. Part of the reason he isn't getting called up will be because the A's have very little incentive to start his service clock. The other part is that he plays the same position as the team's only current capable hitter, catcher Sean Murphy. And yet, despite these impediments, Jock reports that a call-up seems fairly likely for Shea Langoliers. Uh, what is Jock thinking or smoking? Well, for one, it's improbable that Murphy and Langoliers are ever likely to coexist on the same roster for too long, given their plus defense. Murphy could fetch a king's ransom on the trade market. Strong defensive catcher who's OPSing 714 with four homers, 17 RBIs, is just the prize for a needy contender. Uh, the speculative bet is that if Longoliers continues to match at AAA, they'll promote it. They'll promote him if Murphy misses service time with an injury, even if Murphy stays active. Most of the time, DH Jed Lowry is scuffling. Nine for 48, 188 average, one home run, six RBIs, 58 hard contact index, and pretty clearly nearing the end of the line at age 38. So Longoliers and Murphy could easily become a catcher DH tandem. Jock recommends rostering Longoliers now and keeper in dynasty leagues. And I'll add that if your league rules let you stash potential call-ups, might be worth a speculative move. It might indeed. I'm going to be looking at that this weekend for sure. Nick, thanks again for helping us out with news from both the major leagues, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's our feature expert interview with Todd Zola, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, a quick reminder of what's coming up on the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Rob Silver, a past NFBC grand champion and a regular on the Launch Angle podcast. And of course, we'll have all the usual great stuff, our National League and American League news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries all coming up next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview featuring Todd Zola, the king of all fantasy baseball media. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. We have some interesting stuff I'd like to talk to you about and get your take. But uh, before we get started, how are your leagues doing this year? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't check my standings. All right, yeah, I'm checking my standings now. We're doing all right. Uh, Tout Wars is not doing all right. Um, Labor XFL, some of my private leagues. We're doing, we're doing, we're in, we're 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 where I want to be. So yeah, other than Tout Wars, which is just another terrible year, um, we're, we're 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 doing okay. When you say you're where you're you want to be, where do you want to be typically? Um, top half. Top half of the standings don't need to be in first. Um, you know what they call the team that has the fourth best week every week of the year? The winner. Yeah. So I'm not, you know, if I'm in, you know, I'm in fourth or fifth now. I don't care. If I if I'm the fourth or fifth best team every single week of the season, yeah, I'm gonna win. So, you know, you know, if you're in first place, does that mean that you've been lucky? Yeah, probably, but you probably also have some good players and um, you know, if I'm in last place in Tout Wars because I had Reverse and Martin active that week, yeah, I mean, there, there's that too. So, uh, but still early enough that moves can be made, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nose to the grindstone, but 
Um, you know, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna, you know, sheepishly say, I don't know, PD, I haven't checked my standings yet. It's middle of May. I've checked my standings. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, uh, is there room for you to move? Do you think in the, uh, in the categories? Oh, I think there's always room. I mean, the tell one of the things in tell wars, I, I had Jonathan India. So he was my most, you know, when Jonathan India is your most expensive player, that shows your strategy anyway. And he's been out. Uh, so I hope, you know, get him back, get some sparks. Um, you know, uh, XFL, the hybrid keeper dynasty league that uh, a lot of industry folks are in, uh, finally on a competing, you know, on a competing, uh, uh, you know, up and down peak and valley. So that's fun. Labor, labor, my offense is really, really good. I just need to, which is kind of by design. And now I just need to manage the pitching and I've got a lot of those. I don't remember what RTS uses if it's the IL or the suitcase or the, uh, what, you know, today I get a lot of, it's tense. That's what it, yeah, I have a lot of tens next to my players in, in the, uh, in, in labor. So once they come back, there's upwards movement. And for those who aren't familiar, XFL is a, a very deep keeper league with all kinds of unusual rules, shall we say. And you guys have multiple drafts every year for the picking up the unkept players. Then you have a draft, uh, an auction. There's all kinds of things going on. But one of the things about it, because of the real, real serious depth in your farm systems, is you guys are very much like real baseball in that it is a cycle of, you know, compete, uh, do your best, tear it down, build it up, compete like that. So it's always fun when you get through the building it up phase and you feel like you have a competitive team. And hopefully it lasts for uh, a couple of years anyway before you start losing guys to salary increases and so forth. Yeah, see this, like we call it, at least I call it, a hybrid keeper dynasty, right? With a dynasty, pure dynasty, you just have your players ad nauseum and you're you're filling in the blanks with the draft, uh, you know, the, the, the player entry draft and, and, and things like that. We do have salary escalations, but as an example, Mike Trout never been in the auction. He, he was drafted as a, he's a minor leaguer. He has a plus three increment. He's never been in the auction. So in that regard, it's a, it, it's a dynasty league. He's, it's what, 10 years in the career. And he, and he may not be in for another couple of years because he's a, it's an OBP league. But yet there are salary escalations, so there are players that are thrown back, and the, you know that you can replenish. So it's in between. You know, in a pure dynasty league, um, you know it's it's mostly you know mostly just dealing with when you make your trades, the the older pitcher that you're just not sure how many years he has left for the young stud. Uh, it's kind of it, to me, I like it because it's a combination of everything. You 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 can play it like a keeper try to rebuild really fast, but the, you know, there's not as much trading of the top prospects as there are in standard keeper league. So yeah. And it, it, I, 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 you know, I know you'll find this hard to believe, but I swat the league and um, you know, I, I think I have a good keeper list. I'll, I'll say to myself, then I'll put together the, the draft sheet for everybody else. And wow, my keeper list isn't so good compared to everybody else's. So uh, it's, it, it is, it's a fun league. And a uh, and a competitive league as well, which is where the fun comes from. I suspect for for all yeah, of us. Yeah. Uh, is it too early to be thinking about uh, where you're going to make your trades? No, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, one one standard keeper league. You know, there's always been a this, well we, because of the early dumps, we we restricted trading until May first. But on May first, point zero 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 one. 
uh, trades, you know, the, you, you know, we were allowed to negotiate, just couldn't announce. And, you know, there was dumping going on the second it was literally the second it was allowed. Um, it's just, that's each league has its own culture, et cetera. But XFL so far, there haven't been any clear cut. I'm dumping type of deals yet. I think it just has to do with who's in what part of the cycle and the, and the approach you know, of, of each, because, you know, last year, I think we even had some dump trades, between, you know, before the season started. Um, this year hasn't been that way yet. There's also a lot more teams competing this season. And, the, and I don't know if it's just the way it, the, because of the lack of offense, maybe categories are more tightly bunched, et cetera, and things haven't separated yet. But I think there's enough teams that are, you know what, I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to let this play out. That I don't, but the the short answer is no. If your league culture is to to dump early, to rebuild early, and you don't, you're at a competitive dis. You know, it's not my my philosophy is to wait till you know I don't care. Well, then you could behind if your competitors are strengthening their teams, man, you got to do the same thing. What about in single year leagues, Todd, or uh, redraft leagues where you're only getting the player for one year? Is there any adjustment that you think you have to make as far as when you're starting to think about trading and when you're starting to make your offers? Yeah, I made a, I wrote a piece this week in uh, Rotowire, my Z files this week was kind of on this. And in, in the, uh, the tout table this week is kind of on this as well because um, I, I'm not an, I don't, I don't actively seek deals early. Um, I, I'm not against them either. So mainly because I'm just not, I'm just not a good trader. The socially, I'm just, I'm kind of, you know, my, I'm kind of socially insecure, and in, in I carries over to my trading. But yet, I want, I want to. If someone approaches me, I want them to feel comfortable and congenial. So I actually try to do an early trade, just so people see that Zola made a trade. Yeah, we could ask him. You know, he's not going to just blow me off or whatever but I don't go out and approach it, but I don't think it's ever too early to improve your team, but I think it's a little too early to make some assumptions about needs, et cetera. I mean, if you've got some holes, I think you try to fill them, but I don't know that you, you, you I think it's a little early, especially because we just don't know what the next four and a half months holds as far as the baseball numbers and, you know, I'm, you know, we're going to let, let's 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 readjust our strategy for the low run scoring environment. MLB unplugs the humidors and suddenly it's up again. You know, we don't know what's going to we don't know what's going on. Or maybe it's down worse because apparently there's a lot of uh, concern amongst people who have been looking at this as far as the consistency with which the uh, humidors have been applied. There's still some question about the balls themselves and the sourcing and so forth. And you told me uh, just the other day about a Twitter thread that was started by uh, the astrophysicist, Dr. Meredith Wills, who seems to have made a sideline for herself doing research into the baseball. So she's looking at distant stars (laughs) on her regular job and then little tiny stars, uh, well, little tiny spheres in her... uh, side uh, job, and she specifically has been interested in the effects of humidors, which we just brought up a moment ago. Uh, she had this Twitter thread. What did she say in summary? Well, it's kind of the, 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 the humidor, incorporating humidor in 30 parks, the purpose was to have consistency amongst all the baseballs, park to park to park, reduce injuries, you know, you don't have to adjust, per, you know, the, the, the ball's the same. It takes that variable out of the equation. 
The problem, however, there have been unintended consequences of doing so. And as a scientist, I'm frustrated by some of it. I'm fascinated by a lot more. Uh, but you know, it, it, to me, there, there has there has been a a deficiency in the investigation or the repercussions of doing so. In short, what has happened, and this makes now that I now that you know it's out there, it makes so much sense to me because before it's like, what the heck? Dented baseballs? There's flat spots on baseballs? That doesn't make sense. So what happens is the strings inside the ball are sensitive to moisture. And depending upon if it's going from more humid to less humid, less humid to more humid, more often than not, humidity is being added to the ball and it's being added to the strings and they're not expanding uniformly, right? So the play, the part, and it doesn't, the places where it's not expanding quite the string inside, not expanding quite as much, well, that's going to flatten, that's going to give a flat spot. And the fact that they're expanding it all is pushing the seams up a bit. And this, the, the two things together are the perfect explanation for the reduced flight. Because you can look at the numbers, and I, other people have done this, and I, I ran them uh, just before we started talking. But the exit velocity is down a little bit, but I don't think it's down enough to account for the, the distance. The average fly ball distance is down five feet. Now it's not uniform. Uh, different parks, it's it's down a different amount because of sometimes you know if they had a humidor before relative to how it was last year. But on the average fly, the average fly ball distance is down five feet. Now, if the average is down five feet, right? Shorter fly balls are down less than five feet, right? And the long fly balls are down more than five feet. It's not linear. And that's where the home run drops coming from because it's, I mean, five feet. And, you know, people tell me that the, the fly ball distance is down five feet at, its ape, at the furthest point. I'd say homers are down, but it's down more than that. So it explains the, the fact that the velocity coming off the bat, the bounciness is about the same, but the ball's just, it's not a mushy ball. It's a parachute ball. They're sprouting little parachutes. Some of the research that Dr. Wills cited in her long Twitter thread included an article in The Athletic by Eno Saris and Ken Rosenthal, and there have been others by them, including one that said that the game-wide humidors might not be properly calibrated to the ambient weather in which they're going to be, the balls are going to be used. And that seems to be exacerbating the problem. And the way I read it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they... They made the humidor settings uniform across all the parks, but the parks themselves aren't uniform. So the effect on the baseball is actually, instead of being consistent, is wildly inconsistent because if you take a perfectly humidored ball out of the humidor in Kansas City, it's going to be a different situation than if you take it out in Boston because of the air temperature, the humidity, the elevation, all of these things combine to make the humidor effect better or worse for the ball as far as distance, and it's not consistent, which is what I know a lot of the players have been complaining about. It isn't that the ball is one way or another, it's that it's no way. Uh, there was one pitcher, it might have been Alec Manoa, but uh, you might remember better than I, who said 
The first inning, the ball's fine. The third inning, it's terrible. The fifth inning, it's somewhere in between. Then the seventh inning, it's something else again. And I think that's what is frustrating for the players, and it's probably going to end up being frustrating for those of us who play fantasy baseball because we just don't know what to expect, except when you sum it up or average it all, we get these results that you were talking about where, generally speaking, distances are down. But it isn't always the case, and it's frustrating to try to figure it out. Yeah, ser- you, know, ser- you know, several things here. I you know, I read the Manoa quote, and I don't, I mean, the ball being different per inning, that, I mean, to me, that's as much frustration for a bad outing as was anything else. Um, but as far as, you know, every humidor has the same temperature and humidity setting, except Colorado, because they need to deaden it even a little bit more. So, but, I, so I don't know how, I don't know how you would, I mean, that that would make the ball the same everywhere, but relative to how it was previously, yeah, in some places it's better, worse, and and different degrees. So I don't know that you want to adjust the setting of the humidor to the actual venue because it's I, I don't know what that does. I mean, it you 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 want it to be the same in everywhere, and then over time, what happened last year doesn't matter because what happened last year is the way it is this year, and it's it's, it's again the same. But to me, the, the the problem is the unintended repercussions of other things are happening to the baseball that are uh, that are affecting the, the dead spots, et cetera. Now, it's not just the humidor because fly ball distance is down in Colorado too, and they've always had the well, not always, but they've had the humidor for what twenty something years. So it's not just the humidor; it's also the baseball. Whatever the baseball itself is is acting differently you know because that there there you have the control of compared to the humidor last year you don't have that in all the all the parks so it's not just the humidor the baseball itself there's an issue with the baseball itself so uh you know the more the more variables the harder it is to figure out what's going on and how to fix it so you know so it's 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 but as you know as a as an analyst, as a player, we kind of joked about it in the first when we first started talking. What do you do? Well, all right, I could give you a list of players whose home runs are lower and harder and that aren't going to be as affected as much by the little parachutes that come out of the ball. And those are the guys we want. And we don't want the guys that hit these majestic shots because those are the ones that are going to get caught up in the air resistance. I could give you a list and we could, you know, it could seem brilliant. Then they change the things, and now the list no longer works. So I don't know what to do. I don't think anybody really knows what to do, and that's part of the frustration of it. I mean, from a game-playing point of view, it doesn't matter. We're all playing with the same set of circumstances as the players are. Uh, it must be worse for them as far as I'm concerned. It, it just to, you know, you see so many instances of a guy hitting the ball really, really hard. And even on TV, you get a flavor or a sense for when a ball's hit hard enough to be a home run and it's dying 15 feet short of the wall. And you think to yourself, well, gosh, I I don't know how to manage this except of course, to get guys in Yankee stadium with the short porch, where they seem to be really taking advantage of with uh, the, uh, Statcast measure that says this would have been a home run in X number of parks, and a lot of the Yankee Stadium ones are one park, namely that one, <laughs> and and nowhere else. And it's a it's a matter for us to figure out 
beforehand, if we'd have known beforehand, it might have altered our strategies. Uh, maybe we would have gone for guys who hit their home runs farther than just wall scrapers. And I've talked about that on Baseball HQ Radio. But there's a, a lot of ways we could have done this had we known, but we didn't know. So now my question to you is, how do you think we can manage the situation on the fly? No pun intended. Wait, I'm not. I don't. I'm. I'm not 100 sure. I agree with the wall scrapers because I, I want guys to hit him lower and harder than I do higher and further. Because the higher he goes, the more it's going to. I mean, I have to think of. I have to. I have to do some looking into that. I'm not. I don't think it's simply. I want to hit the ball far because uh, we're also hitting it high. Uh, but what do we do? I mean, we always. We always care about volume, plate appearances, right? So, I to say to it's just kind of like I'm giving 110. percent You can't give more than 100, percent right? But that's the expression. We have to care even more about mac- maximizing matchups, about volume, about four games versus three, about my left-handed batter facing four right-handed pitchers. You know, on the fringe where you could just maximize the volume, maximize the counting stats. To to me, that's what you have to do. If you as, as hard as you managed previously in season management, you got to do it even you do it even better. I know. Well, I did it as best I could. Well, do it even better. That that I think that's part of it. And pitching, I keep saying this is kind. Of, I don't. Know if it's, I think it's a. I think it's a. Tech, I think it's a catch twenty two, in that the the well, it's going up. Runs are going up. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the pitching this week was just cr- terrible. So it was just organic that runs scored higher this week because pitching was just really starting pitching. I could just tell. I, I talked about it early in the week on my XM, XXM, Sirius XM show with Jeff Erickson that there's runs going to be scored this week because look at the starting pitchers. They're terrible. Um, and I think it, it had to just do with the schedule and the weather and some doubleheaders, et cetera. But anyway, um, I, you you want to stream now. You want to build up your innings now because things are going to – even if it gets a little warmer, things are going to change. But you also want to know a little bit about the pitchers and about the opposition so we know the least we're going to know early in the season about the quality of the pitcher and the quality of the opposition. But yet now is the time you want to start them. So it's kind of – to me, that's like a catch-22. You want to you want to start people you're comfortable with, but I don't know. So I'm, I'm being aggressive early. And, okay, it didn't pay off with Reaver San Martin. Uh, but it's paid off in a few other instances. Um, other people are like, you know, I'm, I don't care if the ERA landscape is low. I'm not starting this guy because I don't know enough about him. So to me, that's that. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a catch twenty two. But it, it, I think you, ha- I think you have to take advantage of this low run scoring environment right now. I'm going to push back on something you said about the uh, the low hard line drive type home runs versus the majestic towering fly ball type home runs. And it, my, I'm coming at this from the point of view of somebody when I was in the military, um, I was streamed into the artillery. And one of the first things they teach you about that is if you want to send something far, you have to send it in a parabolic arc. You can't if you fire it even with twice the gunpowder straight ahead, gravity's always going to win. So if you want to do it, as I said, if you want to maximize distance, you you throw it in a in an arc. And I wonder if that's also not true of the of the baseball flying through the air, given the fact that these changes. I think uh, I'm led to believe from what I've read 
are that the seams are bulging out ever so slightly more, which causes more wind resistance or drag on the ball as it tries to fly through the air, and that therefore uh, the ball doesn't go as far. And I wonder about that description, but if it's true, I think any uh, a, a hitter who hits it high and far, it is high, it is far, um, is going to probably have more home runs than somebody who does hit them on a line drive because there's all that energy goes into the ball and it's moving more quickly, but moving quickly through the air with raised seams seems to be a formula for knocking it down more quickly as well. I don't, I don't really know, but what do you think of the idea of the importance of ballistic trajectory? Well, in a vacuum to maximize distance, you shoot at a 45 degree angle. That's just physics. Uh, but that means now you, but now you get the air resistance, et cetera. So I, that's kind of why I said, I don't know. I don't think it's odd. I, I wanted to, to, to look at it because the other thing is you, you only need the ball to, to barely clear the fence. So I wonder, you know, odds are, which is more like, you know, the, the lower line drive, it's going to go far enough. It's going to get high. It's going to be far and high enough to get out of the park uh, versus some of the more majestic higher shots. I don't know. That's why I want to do a little bit of research into it. I don't know if we have enough of a database yet to download all the home runs and see what the different characteristics and, and compare. But um, I, I, all, I'm, all I'm saying is I don't think it's a I think I think it's a it's a project worth looking into. And I don't know which way I, I, if I had to guess, I don't know which way I would lean. And I should acknowledge that what we call a line drive home run is not in fact a perfectly well, yeah. flat trajectory. It does have a bit of ballistic hump to it, but I'm wondering if it might be worth looking at from a research point of view to take a look at the subset of balls that are hit for home runs, uh, maybe compare years, maybe not, I don't know, but, it, and see if there's been any sort of modest or subtle difference in launch angle. Exactly. To see if uh, certain launch angles are what we call barrels, maybe that range of launch angles that's incorporated into barrels needs to be adjusted based on the fact that the ball flies differently now than it used to apparently. And that unfortunately leaves us as fantasy players back where we started because until somebody does that work, we don't know. And so the, the question is, and I'll ask uh, you again, how do we manage for this going forward other than for pitchers? Do we just recalibrate our expectations for home runs? Do we try to trade for the guys whose home runs we think are going to survive the the dead and ball, uh, punt the category? I don't know. What the heck can you do? So, yeah, I mean, I, what you just described about comparing home runs is exactly what I was talking about. I kind of, you know, rhetorically wondered, do we have enough data right now to make it a significant finding? But that's exactly what I want to do is download the home runs uh, and, and compare to date the characteristics of them. But yeah, as far as what to do, um, do we, you know, do we want, do we want, you know, do we want to focus more on pitchers that have good defense behind them because the, you know, good outfield defense, because the balls are staying in the yard. So I want outfielders to, to make the catches. Um, I get, yeah. I mean, again, it's one of those things where we always care about it, but do we care about it more? Do I want to go for St. Louis pitchers even more because of the outfield and the defense is so darn good and the park is such a good pitcher's park that it's going to help help even more. I, I suppose I, I never want a guy to never want pitchers to walk batters. 
But I, I now I really, really don't want pitchers to walk batters because traffic is what scores run now, scores runs nowadays, and walks are just another means of traffic. So yeah, I, I never like. I, I was, you know what? I was okay with a high walk rate if it came with strikeouts. Now I don't know that I'm okay with a high walk rate as much as I may have been previously. On the other side of valuing pitchers, especially looking ahead, one of the bugaboos that gets people to not consider flyball pitchers is because flyball pitchers tend to give up home runs. Should we be upvaluing uh, some flyball pitchers that are available in trade, available in our free agent wires, because we don't need to be as worried about home runs as we did coming into the year? Yeah, um, our you know our friend Gene McCaffrey kind of led the crusade about this about you know flyball pitchers is not a bad thing, and I know we like to call ground ball rate a skill. I think it's more trait, right? Because I, I think you have to think of it in context with what else you do as far as walks and strikeouts and and defense and home uh, and, and park etc. So I, I I've always loved the idea of getting fly ball pitchers because their whip is naturally lower because they're not giving up those hits. So I, I'm not as afraid of fly ball pitchers as some people, especially in big parks, especially if they've got a good defense because they're, they're going to be out. Yeah. They're going to give, they're going to give up more homers, but they're the rest of their numbers are going to be better. So I, I it, do we focus even more on it now? Yeah, I think we do. I think we look for the parks, the the, the target fields, with with some good defenders and Byron Buxton, you know, I mean, or you know, home run uh, a, a pitcher's park and Byron Buxton, you know. I think we, you know, we're interested in 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 some of these Minnesota pitchers a little bit more, and that's one reason why I was interested in them coming into the season without even knowing about the baseball. Um, but I I do think that we should shy away less from flyball pitchers, especially in big parks with good defenders. I talked about the ball last week in my extra innings comment at the end of uh, the podcast. And my supposition, Todd, was I wondered if Major League Baseball knows exactly what it's doing and wants to reduce the number of home runs because their research has told them that the three things that fans want to see, triples, stolen bases, and great plays in the field, are the three things that happen the, the least in most regular baseball games, especially over the last few years. And the fastest way for them to fix that is to change the ball so that there are more balls in play, but the balls don't travel as far, which gives lots of outfielders chances to run down balls and make diving catches, which people like. Or they fall in for singles or doubles or the occasional triple, and everybody likes triples. Or they fall in for regular base hits. There's more, a little bit more bunting. There's more stolen bases. I don't know if the stolen bases are up. I checked a, a week or so ago, and they did seem to be rising slightly. A little bit. Yep, so yep. this could be a permanent thing that baseball did to make the game more appealing to a broader number of people because no, despite the idea that chicks dig the long ball and everybody likes watching a power pitcher get a lot of strikeouts, it's really not that interesting. And they know it's not that interesting. And they're thinking about not people our age who will watch baseball no matter what, but you know, our kids and our grandkids are really losing touch with baseball because it's dull. It's dull to watch on TV and it's even worse in the park. So I wonder if this is something that we need to prepare ourselves for, not just in the future years, but maybe starting today 
I think the 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 general supposition is correct. I think ball, baseball wanted to dampen offense, dampen home runs a bit. I think I kind of mentioned it when we first started. It was the unintended consequences were that they damped them even more than they anticipated. I think I don't think they want. I don't think I don't think even MLB wanted it to be the extent that it is now. I think they wanted it to be somewhere in between, and. You know, we haven't even mentioned it yet, but this all you know the the other variable with the whole with the whole baseball stuff is the the grip. The you know, it, so everything has to be done together. They have to find a ball that you know, if you hit the ball well, it should be a home run, and if you don't, it shouldn't be, and it should be a ball that the pitchers can throw and you know, throw fairly and grip, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on, but I did think you're right. And that baseball, I mean, wanted the, uh, wanted less offense. And there's other, there are other hints, if not hints, there's other tells the uh, reducing the number of pitchers, uh, the, 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 the rule about having to face three batters, um, the time, the, the pitch clock, all of these feed into weakening pitching a bit. And I think that once the summer wears on and the number of pitchers lessens and as far as the rules go and end of May and starters have to go longer and relievers have to see the same team more frequently and it's harder to churn them with your minor leaguers and or the IL list, I think pitching this is organically going to decline and offense will go up. Uh, I think all these things kind of, Kind of, you know, the, the one of the they say that bases are closer together to prevent collisions at first base. Come on, the bases are closer together to try to get more steals and try to get more infield hits. You know, yeah. uh, so I, I I think they're I, it's not not even hints. They're downright. You know, it's they're like I said, they're tells. They're baseball wants to increase. They want to increase action, and I'm 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 okay with that. Now, the whole shift. The uh, de- legislating the shit. I'm torn on this because you should be rewarded for scouting and for no. If if I know the guy's going to hit the ball right here, I should have my guy right here. But you know, I understand that you know, and and that maybe it's not as exciting. And there's precedent in other sports. In football, you can only have so many men on either side of the ball, and some have to be in the line of scrimmage, and some have to be off the ball. So there's precedent and. In basketball, there you know three second rule, and there's they've lacked some of the zone rules, but there's certain rules about how how many people can defend a guy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In hockey, you've got the two line offside. I mean, there are rules that you know kind of go against what I'm you know that there are rules that support legislating the shift. Well, yeah, including footballs because the the restrictions on how many players have to be on the line and how many of them yeah, have to yeah. be where that's only on offense. On defense, you can do anything you want. You could have nobody on the line and all, all 11 of them standing on the goal line if you want. And that would be, to me, that would be analogous to what we do in baseball with shifting is, you know, it's kind of the the antithesis or the or the corollary of hit them where they ain't, the Joe Jackson thing, which is if you're the fielder, go where they're going to hit it and stand there because, you know, your chances of making a player that much better. Or we could use the Wayne Gretzky thing. I, I, I go where the puck's going to be kind of thing. I don't think any of these issues are as important as 
what is the rationale or what is the motivation behind them at Major League Baseball? And you said they, they're trying to reduce offense, but only by a little. I don't think that's what they're trying to do, Todd. I think no. what they're trying to do is increase offense, but change the type of offense. Because right, home action, runs stop the action. And what they want is action. They want lots of things going on out there for right. people to be excited by. And they've come to realize after the steroid era and, and the... Uh, the use of, of increased home runs to draw people back after that big strike, I think they're starting to realize that at its core, a home run is not that interesting a thing. I mean, if they hit it 520 feet, yeah, it's interesting. Or if it you know rockets into the third deck and, and knocks a guy's root beer out of his hand, that's an interesting thing. But, you know, when you get guys just regular guys who are poking them here and poking them there. And sometimes a few years ago, remember you could, you watch a game and you'd say, Oh, that guy just hit a, you know, medium fly ball. And next, you know, it's flying out of the park and you're going, what the heck, you know? And it, and then I get to sit and watch a guy run, run the bases at barely over walking speed. I want to see these guys run They're athletes. And that to me would be just way more interesting. And it would be more yeah. interesting from a fantasy point of view, I suspect if we had fewer home runs and more stolen bases and those kinds of things in the game, because then there's more ways to manipulate the categories, batting average and stolen bases and all these kinds of things. Yeah. I, when I first said uh, this offense, I actually misspoke and did say later more action, but you're right. When I first said it, I said less offense, but you're right. It's, it's more action. Now you mentioned fantasy. Um, you know, another reason why MLB wants more action, wants more balls in play. Gambling. Is- yeah, no, and, and not, I mean, not to take it a step further, you can literally gamble on the outcome of a pitch. And the more time the ball's put in play, the more, you know, the, you know, the, the, that becomes more of an enticement. You know, there's, there's, there's equipment that you can, I mean, I've been watching going to FSGA and FSGA meetings for years where they talked about this and it's finally coming in. When you could literally, I'll bet this is a ground ball. I'll bet this, you know, you could, I'll bet this is a slider, but that's not fun. You know, uh, so and and you know as much as that th- that is is feeding into it as well, but no, you're right. Just to clarify, MLB wants more action, not uh, you know they don't you know it's it's and, and uh, all these to me all these rules are designed for that, and I kind of as I, I kind of want more action too, but I want a player if if we're going to credit a player for a home run if he hits the ball out of the park, I think if he hits the ball well enough to go out of the park, it should be a home run. I don't want to, I don't want to eliminate home runs. I just want them to be fair and earned. Yeah. But then you're just getting into a definitional argument about what constitutes fair and earned. Are you going to go back to, you know, how Mickey Mantle hit home runs? Are you going to go to, you know, Johnny Bench yeah, hit sure. home runs or are we going to go back to how McGuire hit home runs? <laughs> no, exactly. And that, that is somewhat subjective, but I know I, I don't think the idea is to completely, Remove home, you know, that's hyperbole. Of course, it's not to remove home runs from the game. But, um, you know, from what, you know, previous to, say, 2019, you know, you know, if 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 a ball was hit, you know, when we're watching and not even talking about the ball and the humidors, if we're just watching game, if a ball went out then, I think it should go out now. Um, you know, there's been variations year to year to year. Um, the other, you know, the other, the other whole aspect of it is strikeouts. None of this, none, well, Pitch, weakening pitching as the season goes on could lower strikeouts. Um, I know people want to move the mound back. I am uh, at least I'm, I'm dead set against that. I think it's just going to 
too many injuries, and, and I think it just affects the pit. You know, a certain pitchers have been designed to to break at a certain time, a certain distance, and moving the bound back, it just it could it messes that up. Now it'll be done gradually, but even so, um, I could I could move the mound down, but I don't like moving the mound back. Uh, but it, it's I don't know. I um, and from an analyst, you know, we we'll, we'll talk about it. We're we're still. Each year is now, you know, all right, so we get, we're going to get 2000. Yeah, we're going to get 2019. No, we're not. We're still going to have 2019, 2021, 20. Yeah, we could get 2019 off of our three-year ledger, but now we've got the short in 2020, 2021, which had, you know, two different baseballs and everything else, you know, so we're we're continually dealing with, you know, our, our inputs are just, they're not apples to apples to apples. They're continuing to be different. And that, and that's going to remain the same. And something else yeah. that's going to remain the same is looking backwards. You said, uh, a home run that was hit then should be a home run now. And my first thought was, well, when is then, you know, are we talking well, about three years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Well, should it be like right. 1968? I don't, I don't know. And, and that's my point. I think what they need to do. And what I think what they are doing, in fact, is they're saying, we're going to greatly de-emphasize home runs because we believe that that's ultimately not the most entertaining product in the field. And I hadn't thought of gambling, but gosh, you know, if you're in an environment like it was in uh, in Happy Fun Ball and you're trying to run a gambling operation, you can set odds, but you can bet that a lot of guys are going to be betting on home runs. and, And it's just, like I said, it's not that interesting. And I think for fantasy perspective, from a fantasy perspective, I'd rather play in a game where home runs weren't so dominant as a scoring mechanism because I think, as I said, it's going to reward other kinds of players. We're going to get more small, fast guys. You know, some of the most fun I ever had watching ba- uh, baseball, and I'm not a Cardinals fan, but those Whitey Herzog teams were fun to watch. Right. I mean, I think we're kind of on the same page, but I'm. I think I want home run to still be part. I want, I want them to be two men on base and down two runs. And I still want to be on the edge of my seat. Cause this guy may hit a home run. I still think they, to me, I think I just want a, a slightly more part of the offense um, than, than, than what you may be suggesting. I still want it to be an integral part of the game, but I also want more action. Now, you know, going back to the shift, if, if it's, if it's legislated now, the defenders need to be more athletic. And if the if defenders are more athletic, they do more athletic things when they're hitters, right? They run a little more. They they spray the ball around. So I think it could be have that could have a positive effect. Again, it goes against my principles of I did the research. I know that guy hits the ball there. I'm putting three guys right there. But by not doing it, it may improve the overall game. On the other hand, perhaps the hitters will learn how to hit it where they ain't. Going back to that old aphorism, yeah. and and maybe somebody will do what Joey Gallo's been doing successfully this year is when nobody's standing anywhere near third base, just bunt it down to third base and stroll over to first. I think somebody even got a double this year doing that because there was nobody. They were all so far away from where the ball was that he managed to actually get to second without hitting it barely to to the third base bag. I think those kinds of things. There's there's lots of small rules and big rules that could get adjusted that will have effects on the game and on fantasy baseball as well. And I'm just pretty excited to see it. But before I I let you go, Todd, I'm going to, and if you have to, to not answer this question because you're the commissioner of the league and that I'm talking about here, which is the tout American league only, I have 
as big a lead in the stolen base category as I've ever had at this stage of a, of a season in any category ever. And I've been playing this game for 30 years. Is it too soon to think I've got a, this surplus that I should start uh, offering it around? No, I don't, I don't think so at all. Because even if you, all right, so, you know, you're, you're concerned that you drop, you know, out of, you know, you can, if you can gain in multiple categories from stolen bases, that's the difference. That's so I, you know, maybe I'm wrong and this guy stops running and I, I no longer lead and I'm now down to 10 points. Yeah, you lost two points, but hopefully you gained eight or nine in the other categories. Um, if you're talking about, in general, more theory about stolen bases and and you know how it relates, I think steals are going to continue to come up a bit. And other, if you have a huge lead, I think it's okay to sort of take advantage of it. But if it's kind of a slim lead, I don't. It's it's to me it's slim because. Other teams are going to start to run a little bit more. But I don't think it's wrong to try to take advantage of the lead in, that you have now because knowing, you know, a good trader and you're a good trader are going to improve multiple categories from that one singular one. On the flip side of it, if I was re- receiving the offer, I don't know how happy I'd be about trading a, you know, a four category guy for a one category guy. Although, most of the guys that are getting stolen bases for me are contributing across the board. So it might let me deal from a position of strength. It'll be interesting to find out. I'm surprised I haven't been approached yet, actually, because there's some of the other guys in the league look like they could make some hay by getting stolen bases, but we'll see. It's been, uh, it's going to be an interesting rest of the season. That's for sure. Uh, Todd, thanks very much for helping us out. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with you, which is getting to be a very big list. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's been it's kind of it's it's stagnant, which is good. Uh, but yeah, um, do some work for RotoWire and uh, can be found there. Podcast on Fridays, uh, SiriusXM on with my new partner Eric Halterman on Saturdays, MLB Network Radio. Then Sunday to Tuesday with Jeff Erickson on the Fantasy Network, our Fantasy Channel. Um, doing some work for ESPN in season work as always, and always over at Masters Ball. But you know, once every four, five, six weeks. I'm uh, I'm blessed by your presence. Actually, the reverse is true. Thanks, Todd. Talk to you again uh, in a few weeks. Absolutely, my friend. Todd Zola is the king of fantasy baseball media. He writes at Rotowire and at Masters Ball for ESPN, and he appears regularly on multiple podcasts and at SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. Quick break here, and then we're back with our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. That ball hit deep in the left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch! What a play! Wise makes the catch! What a play by Wise! Mercy! What a play by Wise! Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this game. Alexei! Yes! 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 History! Baseball HQ Radio.
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Dodgers second baseman Michael Bush is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a strong, physically mature hitter who showed improved power without sacrificing plate discipline, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Is that an understatement? Maybe. Consider this. 24-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers second baseman Michael Bush, after smacking 20 home runs and 409 at-bats in 2021, is already halfway to that goal in only 27 games in 2022. That's right, 10 home runs in only 27 games by a Dodgers second baseman, no less. Wow! To put those numbers in perspective, Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge was leading Major League Baseball in home runs when he adjudicated 10-round trippers in 29 games. Similar pace. And remember, we're only talking about home run pace here, not mechanics or direct comparisons of Bush and Judge. Don't do that. Plus, Bush has currently never played above A. That's why 24-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers second baseman Michael Bush, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, 10 home runs in 27 games, though arguably an unsustainable pace and a small sample size, is a really, really good start to the 2022 season. So what's the secret? According to Baseball HQ's 2022 Baseball Forecaster, page 238 prospects, Bush consistently comes to the plate with a reasonable plan and uses his disciplined eye, short stroke, and a picturesque swing to make easy hard contact. At least he makes it look easy. Worth noting, Bush's 295 batting average and his 1,086 OPS through 95 at-bats suggests that Bush's plan is working to a T, meaning transfer to AAA then the majors if he remains consistent. Thus, Bush's 353 batting average on balls in play, or BABIP, in 2022 perhaps only suggests slight batting average regression closer to his 328 BABIP mean. Staying the course is the name of the game, Bush was quoted as saying by MLB.com on April 13, 2022. I just want to be as consistent as I can be, the Invergrove Heights, Minnesota native continued on both sides of the ball. However, defensively, Bush's recent appearances in the outfield at AA, on the other side of the ball, may pretend a possible upcoming utility stint with the Dodgers. Obviously, increased positional eligibility at first base and outfield will only enhance the value of 24-year-old power-hitting Los Angeles Dodgers second baseman Michael Bush as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And today I'd like to talk about a possibly underrated factor in starting pitcher performance. I have Jose Barrios on my roster in the Tout American League salary draft. Like you, I try to watch as many of my pitcher starts as I can, and living 90 minutes away from Rogers Center, we get pretty much all of Barrios' starts, and I have watched them. 
and it hasn't been fun. After a while, I was starting to actively resent the Jays' bullpen, even though I have set up guys Jimmy Garcia and Adam Simber on my roster, because I was getting the impression that while they were nails coming into games behind all the other Jays' starters, they seemed to take the night off when they were relieving for Barrios. Now, I was sensitive to the possibility that I might be sensitive about Barrios' bullpen support, so I decided to look it up. And you know what? The Jays' bullpen pitchers were pitching worse behind Barrios than behind the other Jays' pitchers. So far this season, Barrios has bequeathed 11 base runners to the bullpen when he was leaving games partway through innings, which he has in five of his seven starts. Now, what would you think is the league-wide average percentage of bequeathed runners who score? Think about it. Take a guess. Dum, 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 the answer is, just short of 35% of bequeathed base runners have ended up scoring so far this season. Of Barrios' 11 base runners, Toronto relievers have let six come around to score. 55%, 20 points worse than league average. And overall, the Toronto bullpen has allowed 36.7% of their bequeathed runners to score, which is 22nd in Major League Baseball. But if you leave out their performance supporting Barrios, and I use the word supporting grudgingly, the bequeathed runners' percentage is 31.6%, which would be 13th in Major League Baseball. And all of this got me thinking, what would Barrios' 582 ERA look like if those bequeathed runners hadn't scored, or if they'd scored at the league average, or if they'd scored at Toronto's own bequeathed runner scoring percentage for all the other pitchers. Well, if the bequeathed runners hadn't scored at all, i.e. if the bullpen pitchers had done their jobs perfectly, Barrios's ERA would be 424, more than a run and a half lower. At league average bequeathed runner scoring, 525, still six-tenths of a run better. How about at the team average, 531, half a run better? And how about the team average outside of Barrios, 512, seven-tenths of a run better? Now, I get that most of the fault with Barrios's high ERA lies with his performance. He left the runners on, after all, and mostly in scoring position. His 15.3% K rate is down 8 points from the career average coming into the season. His barrel rate against has doubled his career mark. His FIP is 515, his XFIP 477, Sierra is 472, and Baseball HQ's expected ERA 535. But those ERA estimators do take skills into account. So by this reckoning, I think about half a run of ERA can be attributed to the Toronto bullpen. Other big league pitchers have also been gouged by bad bullpen support. Brandon Woodruff's Milwaukee bullpenners have let all of his runners score and added more than a run of ERA. In Boston, Tanner Houck can thank the bullpen for more than two added runs of ERA. And in San Diego, Sean Manaya has a 3.75 ERA, which is actually pretty good. But if his bullpen hadn't let all three of his runners score, his ERA would be 3.40. So the question is, what can fantasy managers do with this information? Is it just bad luck? If I had time, I'd dig into the particulars. How many outs were there when the reliever came in? How many runners were aboard? And on which bases? 
In my case, the Toronto bullpen, I think, is pretty high quality, and I'm going to play Barrios' bullpen support to even out. I'm also going to expect his BABIP and strand rates to regress towards normal and his ERA at the end of it to get back into line. If anything, I'm going to be more worried about his seeming skills erosion, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on. But in the meantime, hey, Toronto bullpen, pull up your socks. I'm dying over here. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com, and I have my extra innings comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 13th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this full edition, Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and Todd Zola, the king of fantasy baseball media. Tanner's a terrific guest, as you heard, a very thorough researcher whose studies of pitchers' arsenals is well worth a weekly read. And of course, we all know Todd Zola, a tremendous fantasy baseball analyst and a great longtime friend of Baseball HQ Radio and of me personally. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. And take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That helps us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Rob Silver, a past NFBC grand champion and a regular on the Launch Angle podcast. And of course, the usual great stuff, our National and American League news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Rob Silver on the next Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.